This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by L. Ryder Haggard Chapter 11 We Give a Sign for a long while, two hours, I should think, we sat there in silence, being too much overwhelmed by the recollection of the horrors we had seen to talk. At last, just as we were thinking of turning in, drew nigh to dawn, we heard a sound of steps. Then came the challenge of a sentry posted at the corral gate, which apparently was answered, though not in an audible tone, for the steps still advanced, and in another second Infadus had entered the hut, followed by some half-dozen stately-looking chiefs. "'My lords,' he said, "'I have come according to my word. "'My lords and Ignosi, rightful king of the Kukuanas, "'I have brought with me these men,' pointing to the row of chiefs, "'who are great men among us, having each one of them the command of three thousand soldiers that live but to do their bidding under the kings. I have told them of what I have seen and what my ears have heard. Now let them also behold the sacred snake around thee, and hear thy story, Ignosi, that they may say whether or not they will make cause with thee against Twala the king. By way of answer, Ignosi again stripped off his girdle, and exhibited the snake tattooed about him. Each chief in turn drew near and examined the sign by the dim light of the lamp, and without saying a word passed on to the other side. Then Ignosi resumed his muka, and addressing them, repeated the history he had detailed in the morning. "'Now ye have heard, chiefs,' said Infadus, when he had done. What say ye? Will ye stand by this man and help him to his father's throne? Or will ye not? The land cries out against Twala, and the blood of the people flows like the waters in spring. Ye have seen to-night. Two other chiefs there were with whom I had in my mind to speak, and where are they now? The hyenas howl over their corpses. Soon shall ye be as they are, if ye strike not. Choose, then, my brothers. The eldest of the six men, a short, thick-set warrior with white hair, stepped forward a pace and answered, Thy words are true, Infadus, the land cries out. My own brother is among those who died to-night. But this is a great matter, and the thing is hard to believe. How know we that if we lift our spears it may not be for a thief and a liar? It is a great matter, I say, of which none can see the end. For of this be sure, blood will flow in rivers before the deed is done. Many will still cleave to the king, for men worship the sun that still shines bright in the heavens rather than that which has not risen. These white men from the stars, their magic is great, and Ignosi is under the cover of their wing. 
If he be indeed the rightful king, let them give us a sign, and let the people have a sign, that all may see. So shall men cleave to us, knowing of a truth that the white man's magic is with them. Ye have the sign of the snake, I answered. My lord, it is not enough. The snake may have been placed there since the man's childhood. Show us a sign, and it will suffice, but we will not move without a sign. The others gave a decided assent, and I turned in perplexity to Sir Henry and Good, and explained the situation. I think I have it, said Good exultingly. Ask them to give us a moment to think. I did so, and the chiefs withdrew. So soon as they had gone, Good went to the little box where he kept his medicines, unlocked it, and took out a notebook, in the fly-leaves of which was an almanac. Now look here, you fellows. Isn't tomorrow the 4th of June, he answered. We had kept a careful note of the days, so were able to answer that it was. Very good, then here we have it. Four June, total eclipse of the moon, commences at 8.15 Greenwich time, visible in Tenerife, South Africa, etc. There's a sign for you. Tell them we will darken the moon tomorrow night. The idea was a splendid one. Indeed, the only weak spot about it was a fear lest Good's almanac might be incorrect. If we made a false prophecy on such a subject, our prestige would be gone forever, and so would Ignosi's chance of the throne of the Cucuanas. Suppose that the almanac is wrong, suggested Sir Henry to Good, who was busily employed in working out something on a blank page of the book. I see no reason to suppose anything of the sort, was his answer. Eclipses always come up to time, at least that is my experience of them, and it especially states that this one will be visible in South Africa. I have worked out the reckonings as well as I can without knowing our exact position, and I make out that the eclipse should begin here about ten o'clock tomorrow night, and last till half-past twelve. For an hour and a half or so, there should be almost total darkness. Well, said Sir Henry, I suppose we had better risk it. I acquiesced, though doubtfully, for eclipses are queer cattle to deal with. It might be a cloudy night, for instance, or our dates might be wrong, and sent Umbopa to summon the chiefs back. Presently they came, and I addressed them thus. Great men of the Cucuanas, and thou, Infadus, listen. We love not to show our powers, for to do so is to interfere with the course of nature, and to plunge the world into fear and confusion. But since this matter is a great one, and as we are angered against the king because of the slaughter we have seen, and because of the act of the Isanusi, Gagul, who would have put our friend Ignosi to death, we have determined to break a rule, and to give such a sign as all men may see. Come hither, 
and I led them to the door of the hut and pointed to the red ball of the moon. "'What see ye there?' "'We see the sinking moon,' answered the spokesman of the party. "'It is so. Now tell me, can any mortal man put out that moon before her hour of setting and bring the curtain of black light down upon the land?' The chief laughed a little at the question. No, my lord, that no man can do. The moon is stronger than man who looks on her, nor can she vary in her course. Ye say so. Yet I tell you that tomorrow night, about two hours before midnight, we will cause the moon to be eaten up for a space of an hour and half an hour. Yes, deep darkness shall cover the earth, and it shall be for a sign that Ignosi is indeed king of the Kukuanas. If we do this thing, will ye be satisfied? Yea, my lords, answered the old chief with a smile, which was reflected on the faces of his companions. If ye do this thing, we will be satisfied indeed. It shall be done. We three, Inkibu, Bugwan, and Makumazan have said it, and it shall be done. Dost thou hear, Enfadus? I hear, my lord, but it is a wonderful thing that ye promise to put out the moon, the mother of the world, when she is at her full. Yet shall we do it, Enfadus. It is well, my lords. Today, two hours after sunset, Twala will send for my lords to witness the girl's dance, and one hour after the dance begins, the girl whom Twala thinks the fairest shall be killed by Scraga, the king's son, as a sacrifice to the silent ones who sit and keep watch by the mountains yonder. And he pointed towards the three strange-looking peaks where Solomon's road was supposed to end. Then let my lords darken the moon and save the maiden's life, and the people will believe indeed. Aye, said the old chief, still smiling a little, the people will believe indeed. Two miles from Lu, went on Fadus, there is a hill curved like a new moon, a stronghold, where my regiment and three other regiments which these chiefs command are stationed. This morning we will make a plan whereby two or three other regiments may be moved there also. Then, if in truth my lords can darken the moon, in the darkness I will take my lords by the hand and lead them out of loo to this place where they shall be safe, and thence we can make war upon Twala the king. It is good, said I. Let leave us to sleep a while and to make ready our magic. Infadus rose, and having saluted us, departed with the chiefs. "'My friends,' said Ignosi, as soon as they were gone, "'can ye do this wonderful thing, or were ye speaking empty words to the captains?' "'We believe that we can do it, Umbopa, Ignosi, I mean.' "'It is strange,' he answered, "'and had ye not been Englishmen, I would not have believed it. "'but I have learned that English gentlemen tell no lies. "'If we live through the matter, be sure that I will repay you.' 
Ignosi, said Sir Henry, promise me one thing. I will promise, Inkubu, my friend, even before I hear it, answered the big man with a smile. What is it? This, that if ever you come to be king of this people, you will do away with the smelling out of wizards such as we saw last night, and that the killing of men without trial shall no longer take place in the land. Ignosi thought for a moment after I had translated this request, and then answered, The ways of black people are not as the ways of white men, Inkibu, nor do we value life so highly. Yet I will promise. If it be in my power to hold them back, the witch-finders shall hunt no more, nor shall any man die the death without trial or judgment. That's a bargain, then, said Sir Henry. And now let us get a little rest. Thoroughly wearied out, we were soon sound asleep, and slept till Ignosi woke us about eleven o'clock. Then we rose, washed, and ate a hearty breakfast. After that we went outside the hut and walked about, amusing ourselves with examining the structure of the Kukuana huts and observing the customs of the women. "'I hope that eclipse will come off,' said Sir Henry, presently. "'If it does not, it will soon be all up with us,' I answered mournfully. "'For so sure as we are living men, some of those chiefs will tell the whole story to the king, "'and then there will be another sort of eclipse, and one that we shall certainly not like.' Returning to the hut, we ate some dinner and passed the rest of the day in receiving visits of ceremony and curiosity. At length the sun set, and we enjoyed a couple of hours of such quiet as our melancholy forebodings would allow to us. Finally, about half-past eight, a messenger came from Twala to bid us to the great annual dance of girls which was about to be celebrated. Hastily we put on the chain shirts that the king had sent us, and taking our rifles and ammunition with us, so as to have them handy in case we had to fly, as suggested by Infidus, we started boldly enough, though with inward fear and trembling. The great space in front of the king's corral bore a very different appearance from that which it had presented on the previous evening. In place of the grim ranks of serried warriors, were company after company of Kukuana girls, not overdressed, so far as clothing went, but each crowned with a wreath of flowers, and holding a palm leaf in one hand, and a white arum lily in the other. In the center of the open moonlit space sat Twala the king, with old Gagool at his feet, attended by Infidus, the boy Scraga, and twelve guards. There were also present about a score of chiefs, among whom I recognized most of our friends of the night before. Twala greeted us with much apparent cordiality, though I saw him fix his one eye viciously on Umbopa. "'Welcome, white men from the stars,' he said. "'This is another sight from that which your eyes gazed on by the light of last night's moon.' but it is not so good a sight. 
Girls are pleasant, and were it not for such as these, and he pointed round him, we should none of us be here this day, but men are better. Kisses and the tender words of women are sweet, but the sound of the clashing of the spears of warriors and the smell of men's blood are sweeter far. Would ye have wives from among our people, white men? If so, choose the fairest here, and ye shall have them, as many as ye will. And he paused for an answer. As the prospect did not seem to be without attractions for good, who, like most sailors, is of a susceptible nature, being elderly and wise, foreseeing the endless complications that anything of the sort would involve, for women bring trouble so surely as the night follows the day, I put in a hasty answer. Thanks to thee, O king. But we white men wed only with white women like ourselves. Your maidens are fair, but they are not for us. The king laughed. It is well. In our land there is a proverb which runs, Women's eyes are always bright, whatever the color. And another that says, Love her who is present, for be sure she who is absent is false to thee. But perhaps these things are not so in the stars. In a land where men are white, all good things are possible. So be it, white men. The girls will not go begging. Welcome again, and welcome too, thou black one. If Gagool here had won her way, thou wouldst have been stiff and cold by now. It is lucky for thee that thou too camest from the stars. Ha <laughs> ha! I can kill thee before thou killest me, O king, was Ignosi's calm answer, and thou shalt be stiff before my limbs cease to bend. Twala started. Thou speakest boldly, boy, he replied angrily. Presume not too far. He may well be bold in whose lips are truth. The truth is a sharp spear which flies home and misses not. It is a message from the stars, O king. Twala scowled, and his one eye gleamed fiercely, but he said nothing more. Let the dance begin, he cried. And then the flower-crowned girls sprang forward in companies, singing a sweet song and waving the delicate palms and white lilies. On they danced, looking faint and spiritual in the soft, sad light of the risen moon, now whirling round and round, now meeting in mimic warfare, swaying, eddying here and there, coming forward, falling back in an ordered confusion delightful to witness. At last they paused, and a beautiful young woman sprang out of the ranks and began to pirouette in front of us with a grace and vigor which would have put most ballet girls to shame. At length she retired exhausted, and another took her place, then another, and another. But none of them, either in grace, skill, or personal attractions, came up to the first. When the chosen girls had all danced, the king lifted his hand. "'Which deem ye the fairest, white men?' he asked. "'The first, said I unthinkingly. Next second I regretted it, for I remembered that Infadus had told us that the fairest woman must be offered up as a sacrifice.' 
"'Then is my mind as your minds, and my eyes as your eyes. "'She is the fairest, and a sorry thing it is for her, for she must die.' "'I must die,' piped out Gagool, "'casting a glance of her quick eyes in the direction of the poor girl, "'who, as yet ignorant of the awful fate in store for her, "'was standing some ten yards off in front of a company of maidens,' "'engaged in nervously picking a flower from her wreath to pieces, petal by petal. "'Why, O king,' said I, restraining my indignation with difficulty, "'the girl has danced well and pleased us. "'She is fair, too. "'It would be hard to reward her with death.' "'Twala laughed as he answered. "'It is our custom, and the figures who sit in the stone yonder.' and he pointed towards the three distant peaks, must have their due. Did I fail to put the fairest girl to death today, misfortune would fall upon me and my house. Thus runs the prophecy of my people. If the king offer not a sacrifice of a fair girl on the day of the dance of the maidens to the old ones who sit and watch on the mountains, then shall he fall, and his house. Look ye, white men, my brother who reigned before me offered not the sacrifice, because of the tears of the woman, and he fell, and his house, and I reign in his stead. It is finished. She must die. Then turning to the guards, bring her hither, Scraga, make sharp thy spear. Two of the men stepped forward, and as they advanced, the girl, for the first time realizing her impending fate, screamed aloud and turned to fly. But the strong hands caught her fast and brought her, struggling and weeping, before us. "'What is thy name, girl?' piped Gagool. "'What? Wilt thou not answer? Shall the king's son do his work at once?' At this hint, Scraga, looking more evil than ever, advanced a step and lifted his great spear, and at that moment I saw Good's hand creep to his revolver. The poor girl caught the faint glint of steel through her tears, and it sobered her anguish. She ceased struggling, and clasped her hands convulsively, stood shuddering from head to foot. See, cried Skaga, in a high glee, she shrinks from the sight of my little plaything even before she has tasted it. And he tapped the broad blade of his spear. If ever I get the chance, you shall pay for that, you young hound. I heard Good mutter beneath his breath. Now that thou art quiet, give us thy name, my dear. Come, speak out, and fear not, said Gagool in mockery. "'Oh, mother,' answered the girl in trembling accents, "'my name is Fulata of the house of Suko. "'Oh, mother, why must I die? I have done no wrong.' "'Be comforted,' went on the old woman in her hateful tone of mockery. "'Thou must die, indeed, as a sacrifice to the old ones who sit yonder.' "'And she pointed to the peaks.' "'But it is better to sleep in the night than to toil in the daytime. "'It is better to die than to live, "'and thou shalt die by the royal hand of the king's own son.' "'The girl Fulata wrung her hands in anguish and cried out aloud, "'O oh, cruel 
and I so young. What have I done that I should never again see the sun rise out of the night, or the stars come following on his track in the evening, that I may no more gather the flowers when the dew is heavy, or listen to the laughing of the waters? Woe is me that I shall never see my father's hut again, nor feel my mother's kiss, nor tend the lamb that is sick. Woe is me that no lover shall put his arm around me and look into my eyes, nor shall men children be born of me. Oh, cruel, cruel! And again she wrung her hands and turned her tear-stained, flower-crowned face to heaven, looking so lovely in her despair, for she was indeed a beautiful woman, that assuredly the sight of her would have melted the hearts of any less cruel than were the three fiends before us. Prince Arthur's appeal to the ruffians who came to blind him was not more touching than that of this savage girl. But it did not move Gagool, or Gagool's master, though I saw signs of pity among the guards behind and on the faces of the chiefs. And as for good, he gave a fierce snort of indignation and made a quick motion as though to go to her assistance. With all a woman's quickness, the doomed girl interpreted what was passing in his mind and by a sudden movement flung herself before him and clasped his beautiful white legs with her hands. "'O oh, white father from the stars,' she cried, "'throw over me the mantle of thy protection. "'Let me creep into the shadow of thy strength, "'that I may be saved. "'Oh, keep me from these cruel men "'and from the mercies of Gagool. "'All right, my hearty, I'll look after you,' "'sang out good and nervous Saxon.' "'Come on, get up. There's a good girl,' and he stooped and caught her hand. Twala turned and motioned to his son, who advanced with his spear lifted. "'Now's your time,' whispered Sir Henry to me. "'What are you waiting for?' "'I am waiting for that eclipse,' I answered. "'I have had my eye on the moon for the last half hour, and I never saw it look healthier.' "'Well, you must risk it now, or the girl will be killed. "'Twala is losing patience.' "'Recognizing the force of the argument, "'and having cast one more despairing look at the bright face of the moon, "'for never did the most ardent astronomer with a theory to prove "'await a celestial event with such anxiety, "'I stepped with all the dignity that I could command "'between the prostrate girl and the advancing spear of Scraga.' "'King,' I said, "'it shall not be. "'We will not endure this thing. "'Let the girl go in safety.' "'Twala rose from his seat in wrath and astonishment, "'and from the chiefs and serried ranks of maidens "'who had closed in slowly upon us "'in anticipation of the tragedy "'came a murmur of amazement. "'Shall not be, thou white dog, "'that yappest at the lion in his cave, "'shall not be?' Art thou mad? Be careful, lest this chicken's fate overtake thee, and those with thee. How canst thou save her or thyself? Who art thou that thou settest thyself between me and my will? Back, I say. Scraga, kill her. 
No, guards, seize these men. At his cry, armed men ran swiftly from behind the hut, where they had evidently been placed beforehand. Sir Henry, Good, and Umbopa ranged themselves alongside of me and lifted their rifles. Stop! I shouted boldly, though at the moment my heart was in my boots. Stop! We, the white men from the stars, say that it shall not be. Come but one pace nearer, and we will put out the moon like a wind-blown lamp, as we who dwell in her house can do, and plunge the land in darkness. Dare to disobey, and ye shall taste of our magic. My threat produced an effect. The man halted, and Scragga stood still before us, his spear lifted. Hear him! Hear him! piped Gagool. Hear the liar who says that he will put out the moon like a lamp. Let him do it, and the girl shall be speared. Yes, let him do it, or die by the girl, he and those with him. I glanced up at the moon despairingly, and now to my intense joy and relief saw that we, or rather the almanac, had made no mistake. On the edge of the great orb lay a faint rim of shadow, while a smoky hue grew and gathered upon its bright surface. Never shall I forget that supreme, that superb moment of relief. Then I lifted my hand solemnly towards the sky, an example which Sir Henry and Good followed, and quoted a line or two from the Ingoldsby legends at it in the most impressive tones that I could command. Sir Henry followed suit with a verse out of the Old Testament and something about Balbus building a wall in Latin, whilst Good addressed the Queen of Night in a volume of the most classical bad language which he could think of. Slowly the penumbra, the shadow of a shadow, crept on over the bright surface, and as it crept I heard deep gasps of fear rising from the multitude around. Look, O king, I cried, look, Gagool, look, chiefs and people and women, and see if the white men from the stars keep their word, or if they be but empty liars. The moon grows black before your eyes. Soon there will be darkness, ay, darkness in the hour of the full moon. Ye have asked for a sign, it is given to you. Grow dark, O moon. Withdraw thy light, thou pure and holy one. Bring the proud heart of usurping murderers to the dust, and eat up the world with shadows. A groan of terror burst from the onlookers. Some stood petrified with dread. Others threw themselves upon their knees and cried aloud. As for the king, he sat still and turned pale beneath his dusky skin. Only Gagool kept her courage. It will pass, she cried. I have often seen the like before. No man can put out the moon. Lose not heart. Sit still. The shadow will pass. Wait, and ye shall see, I replied, hopping with excitement. O moon, 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 wherefore art thou so cold and fickle? This appropriate quotation was from the pages of a popular romance that I chanced to have read recently, though now I come to think of it, it was ungrateful of me to abuse the lady of the heavens, 
who was showing herself to be the truest of friends to us, however she may have behaved to the impassioned lover in the novel. Then I added, Keep it up, good. I can't remember any more poetry. Curse away, there's a good fellow. Good responded nobly to this tax upon his inventive faculties. Never before had I the faintest conception of the breadth and depth and height of a naval officer's objugatory powers. For ten minutes he went on in several languages without stopping, and he scarcely ever repeated himself. Meanwhile the dark ring crept on, while all that great assembly fixed their eyes upon the sky and stared and stared in fascinated silence. Strange and unholy shadows encroached upon the moonlight. An ominous quiet filled the place. Everything grew still as death. Slowly, and in the midst of this most solemn silence, the minutes sped away, and while they sped, the full moon passed deeper and deeper into the shadow of the earth, as the inky segment of its circle slid in awful majesty across the lunar craters. The great pale orb seemed to draw near and to grow in size. She turned a coppery hue, then that portion of her surface which was unobscured as yet grew gray and ashen, and at length, as totality approached, her mountains and her plains were seen to be glowing luridly through a crimson gloom. On, yet on, crept the ring of darkness. It was now more than half across the blood-red orb. The air grew thick and still more deeply tinged with dusky crimson, and yet on, till we could scarcely see the fierce faces of the group before us. No sound rose now from the spectators, and at last Good stopped swearing. "'The moon is dying! The white wizards have killed the moon!' yelled the Prince Scraga at last. "'We shall all perish in the dark!' And animated by fear or fury, or by both, he lifted his spear and drove it with all his force at Sir Henry's breast. But he forgot the mail shirts that the king had given us, and which we wore beneath our clothing. The steel rebounded harmless, and before he could repeat the blow, Curtis had snatched the spear from his hand and sent it straight through him. Scraga dropped dead. At the sight, and driven mad with fear of the gathering darkness, and of the unholy shadow which, as they believed, was swallowing the moon, the companies of girls broke up in wild confusion, and ran screeching for the gateways. Nor did the panic stop there. The king himself, followed by his guards, some of the chiefs in Gagool, who hobbled away after them with marvelous alacrity, fled for the huts, so that in another minute we ourselves, the would-be victim Fulata, Infadus, and most of the chiefs who had interviewed us on the previous night were left alone upon the scene, together with the dead body of Scraga, Twala's son. Chiefs, I said, we have given you the sign. If ye are satisfied, let us fly swiftly to the place of which she spoke. The charm cannot now be stopped. It will work for an hour and the half of an hour. 
let us cover ourselves in the darkness. Come, said Infadus, turning to go, an example which was followed by the odd captains, ourselves, and the girl Fulata, whom Good took by the arm. Before we reached the gate of the corral, the moon went out utterly, and from every quarter of the firmament the stars rushed forth into the inky sky. Holding each other by the hand, we stumbled on through the darkness. End of chapter 11 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 12 Before the Battle Luckily for us, Infadus and the chiefs knew all the paths of the great town perfectly, so that we passed by sideways unmolested, and notwithstanding the gloom, we made fair progress. For an hour or more we journeyed on, till at length the eclipse began to pass, and that edge of the moon which had disappeared the first became again visible. Suddenly, as we watched, there burst from it a silver streak of light, accompanied by a wondrous ruddy glow, which hung upon the blackness of the sky like a celestial lamp, and a wild and lovely sight it was. In another five minutes the stars began to fade, and there was sufficient light to see our whereabouts. We then discovered that we were clear of the town of Loo, and approaching a flat-topped hill measuring some two miles in circumference. This hill, which is of a formation common in South Africa, is not very high. Indeed, its greatest elevation is scarcely more than 200 feet. But it is shaped like a horseshoe, and its sides are rather precipitous and strewn with boulders. On the grass tableland at its summit is ample camping ground, which had been utilized as a military cantonment of no mean strength. Its ordinary garrison was one regiment of 3,000 men, but as we toiled up the steep side of that mountain in the returning moonlight, we perceived that there were several of such regiments encamped there. Reaching the tableland at last, we found crowds of men roused from their sleep, shivering with fear, and huddled up together in the utmost consternation at the natural phenomenon which they were witnessing. Passing through these without a word, we gained a hut in the center of the ground, where we were astonished to find two men waiting, laden with our few good and chattels, which of course we had been obliged to leave behind in our hasty flight. I sent for them, explained Infadus, and also for these, and he lifted up Good's long-lost trousers. With an exclamation of rapturous delight, Good sprang at them, and instantly proceeded to put them on. "'Surely my lord will not hide his beautiful white legs,' exclaimed Infadus regretfully. But Good persisted, and only once did the Kukuwana people get the chance of seeing his beautiful legs again. Good is a very modest man. Henceforward they had to satisfy their aesthetic longings with his one whisker 
his transparent eye, and his movable teeth. Still gazing with fond remembrance at Good's trousers, Infadus next informed us that he had commanded the regiment to muster so soon as the day broke, in order to explain to them fully the origin and circumstances of the rebellion which was decided on by the chiefs, and to introduce to them the rightful heir of the throne, Ignosi. Accordingly, when the sun was up, the troops, in all some twenty thousand men, and the flower of the Kukuana army, were mustered on a large open space to which we went. The men were drawn up in three sides of a dense square, and presented a magnificent spectacle. We took our station on the open side of the square, and were speedily surrounded by all the principal chiefs and officers. These, after silence had been proclaimed, Infadus proceeded to address. He narrated to them in vigorous and graceful language, for like most Kukuanas of high rank, he was a born orator, the history of Ignosi's father, and of how he had been basely murdered by Twala the king, and his wife and child driven out to starve. Then he pointed out that the people suffered and groaned under Twala's cruel rule, instancing the proceedings of the previous night, when under pretense of their being evildoers, many of the noblest in the land had been dragged forth and wickedly done to death. Next he went on to say that the white lords from the stars, looking down upon their country, had perceived its trouble, and determined, at great personal inconvenience, to alleviate its lot that they had accordingly taken the real king of the Kukuanas, Ignosi, who was languishing in exile, by the hand, and led him over the mountains, that they had seen the wickedness of Twala's doings, and for a sign to the wavering and to save the life of the girl Fulata, actually, by the exercise of their high magic, had put out the moon and slain the young fiend Scraga, and that they were prepared to stand by them, and assist them to overthrow Twala, and set up the rightful king, Ignosi, in his place. He finished his discourse amidst a murmur of approbation. Then Ignosi stepped forward and began to speak. Having reiterated all that Infadus, his uncle, had said, he concluded a powerful speech in these words, O chiefs, captains, soldiers, and people, Ye have heard my words. Now must ye make choice between me and him who sits upon my throne, the uncle who killed his brother, and hunted his brother's child forth to die in the cold and the night. That I am indeed the king these, pointing to the chiefs, can tell you, for they have seen the snake about my middle. If I were not the king, would these white men be on my side with all their magic? Tremble, chiefs, captains, soldiers, and people. Is not the darkness they have brought upon the land to confound Twala and cover our flight, darkness even in the hour of the full moon, yet before your eyes? It is, answered the soldiers. I am the king. I say to you, I am the king, went on Ignosi, drawing up his great stature to its full 
and lifting his broad-bladed battle-axe above his head. "'If there be any man among you who says that it is not so, let him stand forth, and I will fight him now, and his blood shall be a red token that I tell you true. Let him stand forth, I say.' And he shook the great axe till it flashed in the sunlight." As nobody seemed inclined to respond to this heroic version of Dilly Dilly, come and be killed, our late henchman proceeded with his address. I am indeed the king, and should ye stand by my side in the battle, if I win the day, ye shall go with me to victory and honor. I will give you oxen and wives, and ye shall take place of all the regiments, and if ye fall, I will fall with you. And behold, I give you this promise, that when I sit upon the seat of my fathers, bloodshed shall cease in the land. No longer shall ye cry for justice to find slaughter. No longer shall the witch-finder hunt you out so that ye may be slain without a cause. No man shall die, save he who offends against the law. The eating up of your kraals shall cease. Each one of you shall sleep secure in his own hut, and fear naught, and justice shall walk blindfold throughout the land. Have ye chosen chiefs, captains, soldiers, and people? We have chosen, O king, came back the answer. It is well. Turn your heads and see how Twala's messengers go forth from the great town, east and west, and north and south, to gather a mighty army to slay me and you, and these my friends and protectors. Tomorrow, or perchance the next day, he will come against us with all who are faithful to him. Then I shall see the man who is indeed my man, the man who fears not to die for his cause, and I tell you that he shall not be forgotten in the time of spoil. I have spoken, O chiefs, captains, soldiers, and people, now go to your huts and make you ready for war. There was a pause, till presently one of the chiefs lifted his hand and outrolled the royal salute. Coom! It was a sign that the soldiers accepted Ignosi as their king. Then they marched off in battalions. Half an hour afterwards we held a council of war, at which all the commanders of regiments were present. It was evident to us that before very long we should be attacked in overwhelming force. Indeed, from our point of vantage on the hill, we could see troops mustering, and runners going forth from Lou in every direction, doubtless to summon soldiers to the king's assistance. We had on our side about 20,000 men, composed of seven of the best regiments in the country, Twala, so Enfadus and the chiefs calculated, had at least thirty to thirty-five thousand on whom he could rely at present assembled in Lu, and they thought that by midday on the morrow he would be able to gather another five thousand or more to his aid. It was, of course, possible that some of his troops would desert and come over to us, but it was not a contingency which could be reckoned on. Meanwhile, it was clear that active preparations were being made by Twala to subdue us. 
Already strong bodies of armed men were patrolling round and round the foot of the hill, and there were other signs also of coming assault. Infadus and the chiefs, however, were of opinion that no attack would take place that day, which would be devoted to preparation and to the removal of every available means of the moral effect produced upon the minds of the soldiery by the supposed magical darkening of the moon. The onslaught would be on the morrow, they said, and they proved to be right. Meanwhile, we set to work to strengthen the position in all ways possible. Almost every man was turned out, and in the course of the day, which seemed far too short, much was done. The paths up the hill, that was rather a sanatorium than a fortress, being used generally as the camping place of regiments suffering from recent service in unhealthy portions of the country, were carefully blocked with masses of stones, and every other approach was made as impregnable as time would allow. Piles of boulders were collected at various spots to be rolled down upon an advancing enemy. Stations were appointed to the different regiments, and all preparation was made which our joint ingenuity could suggest. Just before sundown, as we rested after our toil, we perceived a small company of men advancing towards us from the direction of Lou, one of whom bore a palm leaf in his hand for a sign that he came as a herald. As he drew near, Ignosi, Infidus, one or two chiefs, and ourselves went down to the foot of the mountain to meet him. He was a gallant-looking fellow, wearing the regulation leopard-skin coat. "'Greetings!' he cried as he came near. "'The king's greetings to those who make unholy war against the king, "'the lion's greeting to the jackals that snarl around his heels.' "'Speak,' I said. "'These are the king's words. "'Surrender to the king's mercy ere a worse thing befall you.' Already the shoulder has been torn from the black bull, and the king drives him bleeding about the camp. This cruel custom is not confined to the Kukuanas, but is by no means uncommon amongst African tribes on the occasion of the outbreak of war or any other important public event. Alan Quatermain. What are Twala's terms? I ask from curiosity. His terms are merciful, worthy of a great king. These are the words of Twala, the one-eyed, the mighty, the husband of a thousand wives, lord of the Kukuanas, keeper of the great road, Solomon's road, beloved of the strange ones who sit in silence at the mountains yonder, the three witches, calf of the black cow, elephant whose tread shakes the earth, terror of the evildoer, ostrich, whose feet devour the desert, huge one, black one, wise one, king from generation to generation. These are the words of Twala. I will have mercy and be satisfied with a little blood. One in every ten shall die. The rest shall go free. But the white man, Incubu, who slew Scraga, my son, and the black man, his servant, who pretends to my throne, and Infadus, my brother, who bruised rebellion against me, these shall die by torture as an offering to the silent ones. 
Such are the merciful words of Twala. After consulting with the others a little, I answered him in a loud voice, so that the soldiers might hear, thus, Go back, thou dog, to Twala, who sent thee, and say that we, Ignosi, veritable king of the Kukuanas, Incubu, Buguan, and Makumazan, the wise ones from the stars, who make dark the moon, Infadus of the royal house, and the chiefs, captains, and people here gathered, make answer and say, that we will not surrender, that before the sun has gone down twice, Twala's corpse shall stiffen at Twala's gate, and Ignosi, whose father Twala slew, shall reign in his stead. Now go, ere we whip thee away, and beware how thou dost lift a hand against such as we are. The herald laughed loudly. Ye frighten not men with such swelling words, he cried out. Show yourselves as bold to-morrow, O ye who darken the moon. Be bold, fight, and be merry. Before the crows pick your bones till they are whiter than your faces. Farewell. Perhaps we may meet in the fight. Fly not to the stars, but wait for me, I pray, white men. With this shaft of sarcasm he retired, and almost immediately the sun sank. That night was a busy one, for, weary as we were, so far as was possible by the moonlight, all preparations for the morrow's fight were continued, and messengers were constantly coming and going from the place where we sat in council. At last, about an hour after midnight, everything that could be done was done, and the camp, save for the occasional challenge of a sentry, sank into silence. Sir Henry and I, accompanied by Ignosi and one of the chiefs, descended the hill and made a round of the pickets. As we went, suddenly, from all sorts of unexpected places, spears gleamed out in the moonlight, only to vanish again when we uttered the password. It was clear to us that none were sleeping at their posts. Then we returned, picking our way warily through thousands of sleeping warriors, many of whom were taking their last earthly rest. The moonlight, flickering along their spears, played upon their features and made them ghastly. The chilly night wind tossed their tall and hearse-like plumes. There they lay in wild confusion, with arms outstretched and twisted limbs, their stern, stalwart forms looking weird and unhuman in the moonlight. "'How many of these do you suppose will be alive at this time tomorrow?' asked Sir Henry. "'I shook my head and looked again at the sleeping men, "'and to my tired and yet excited imagination "'it seemed as though death had already touched them. "'My mind's eye singled out those who were sealed to slaughter "'and there rushed in upon my heart a great sense of the mystery of human life.' and an overwhelming sorrow at its futility and sadness. Tonight these thousands slept their healthy sleep. Tomorrow they, and many others with them, ourselves perhaps among them, 
would be stiffening in the cold, their wives would be widows, their children fatherless, and their place know them no more forever. Only the old moon would shine on serenely, the night wind would stir the grasses, and the wide earth would take its rest, even as it did eons before we were, and will do eons after we have been forgotten. Yet man dies not, whilst the world, at once his mother and his monument, remains. His name is lost, indeed, but the breath he breathed still stirs the pine tops on the mountains. The sound of the words he spoke yet echoes on through space. The thoughts his brain gave birth to we have inherited today. His passions are our cause of life. The joys and sorrows that he knew are our familiar friends. The end from which he fled aghast will surely overtake us also. Truly the universe is full of ghosts, not sheeted churchyard specters, but the inextinguishable elements of individual life, which having been can never die, though they blend and change, and change again forever. All sorts of reflections of this nature pass through my mind, for as I grow older I regret to say that a detestable habit of thinking seems to be getting a hold of me. While I stood and stared at those grim yet fantastic lines of warriors, sleeping, as their saying goes, upon their spears. Curtis, I said, I am in a condition of pitiable fear. Sir Henry stroked his yellow beard and laughed, and he answered, I have heard you make that sort of remark before, Quartermain. Well, I mean it now. Do you know, I doubt very much if one of us will be alive tomorrow night. We shall be attacked in overwhelming force, and it is quite a chance if we can hold this place. We'll give a good account of some of them, at any rate. Look here, Quartermain, this business is nasty, and one with which... Properly speaking, we ought not to be mixed up, but we are in for it, so we must make the best of our job. Speaking personally, I had rather be killed fighting than any other way, and now that there seems little chance of our finding my poor brother, it makes the idea easier to me. But fortune favors the brave, and we may succeed. Anyway, the battle will be awful, and having a reputation to keep up, we shall need to be in the thick of the thing. He made this last remark in a mournful voice, but there was a gleam in his eye which belied its melancholy. I have an idea Sir Henry Curtis actually likes fighting. After this, we went to sleep for a couple of hours or so. Just about dawn, we were awakened by Infadus, who came to say that great activity was to be observed in Lou and that parties of the king's skirmishers were driving in our outposts. We rose and dressed ourselves for the fray, each putting on his chain armor shirt, for which garments at the present juncture we felt exceedingly thankful. Sir Henry went the whole length about the matter and dressed himself like a native warrior. 
when you are in Kukuana land, do as the Kukuanas do, he remarked, as he drew the shining steel over his broad breast, which it fitted like a glove. Nor did he stop there. At his request, Infadus had provided him with a complete set of native war uniform. Round his throat he fastened the leopard-skin cloak of a commanding officer. On his brows he bound the plume of black ostrich feathers worn only by generals of high rank, and about his middle a magnificent mukha of white ox-tails. A pair of sandals, a leglet of goat's hair, a heavy battle-axe with a rhinoceros horn handle, a round iron shield covered with white ox-hide, and the regulation number of twalas or throwing knives, made up his equipment, to which, however, he added his revolver. The dress was no doubt a savage one, but I am bound to say that I seldom saw a finer sight than Sir Henry Curtis presented in this guise. It showed off his magnificent physique to the greatest advantage, and when Ignosi arrived presently arrayed in a similar costume, I thought to myself that I had never before seen two such splendid men. As for Good and myself, the armor did not suit us nearly so well. To begin with, Good insisted upon keeping on his new-found trousers, and a stout, short gentleman with an eyeglass, and when half of his face shaved, arrayed in a male shirt, carefully tucked into a very seedy pair of corduroys, looks more remarkable than imposing. In my case, the chain shirt being too big for me, I put it on over all my clothes, which caused it to bulge in a somewhat ungainly fashion. I discarded my trousers, however, retaining only my veltskuns, having determined to go into battle with bare legs in order to be the lighter for running, in case it became necessary to retire quickly. The mail coat, a spear, a shield that I did not know how to use, a couple of twalas, a revolver, and a huge plume, which I pinned into the top of my shooting hat in order to give a bloodthirsty finish to my appearance, completed my modest equipment. In addition to all these articles, of course, we had our rifles, but as ammunition was scarce, and as they would be useless in case of a charge, we arranged that they should be carried behind us by bearers. When at length we had equipped ourselves, we swallowed some food hastily, and then started out to see how things were going on. At one point in the tableland of the mountain, there was a little copy of brown stone, which served the double purpose of headquarters and of a conning tower. Here we found Infadus surrounded by his own regiment, the Greys, which was undoubtedly the finest in the Kukuana army, and the same that we had first seen at the outlying corral. This regiment, now 3,500 strong, was being held in reserve, and the men were lying down on the grass in companies and watching the king's forces creep out of Lou in long, ant-like columns. There seemed to be no end to the length of these columns, three in all, and each of them numbering, as we judged, at least eleven or twelve thousand men. As soon as they were clear of the town, the regiments formed up. Then one body marched off to the right, one to the left, 
and the third came on slowly towards us. Ah, said Infadus, they are going to attack us on three sides at once. This seemed rather serious news, for our position on the top of the mountain, which measured a mile and a half in circumference, being an extended one, it was important to us to concentrate our comparatively small defending force as much as possible. But since it was impossible for us to dictate in what way we should be assailed, we had to make the best of it, and accordingly sent orders to the various regiments to prepare to receive the separate onslaughts. End of chapter 12 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 13 The Attack Slowly and without the slightest appearance of haste or excitement, the three columns crept on. When within about five hundred yards of us, the main or center column halted at the root of a tongue of open plain which ran up into the hill, to give time to the other divisions to circumvent our position, which was shaped more or less in the form of a horseshoe, with its two points facing towards the town of Lou. The object of this maneuver was that the threefold assault should be delivered simultaneously. "'Oh, for a Gatling!' groaned Good, as he contemplated the serried phalanxes beneath us. "'I would clear that plane in twenty minutes.' "'We have not got one, so it is no use yearning for it. "'But suppose you try a shot, Quartermain,' said Sir Henry. "'See how near you can go to that tall fellow who appears to be in command. Two to one you miss him, and an even sovereign to be honestly paid if we ever get out of this, "'that you don't drop that bullet within five yards.' "'This piqued me, so loading the express with solid ball.' I waited till my friend walked some ten yards out from his force, in order to get a better view of our position, accompanied only by an orderly. Then, lying down and resting the express on a rock, I covered him. The rifle, like all expresses, was only sighted to three hundred and fifty yards, so to allow for the drop in trajectory I took him halfway down the neck, which ought I calculated to find him in the chest. He stood quite still and gave me every opportunity, but whether it was the excitement or the wind or the fact of the man being a long shot, I don't know, but this was what happened. Getting dead on, as I thought, a fine sight, I pressed, and when the puff of smoke had cleared away, to my disgust, I saw my man standing there unharmed, whilst his orderly, who was at least three paces to the left, was stretched upon the ground, apparently dead. Turning swiftly, the officer I had aimed at began to run towards his men in evident alarm. "'Bravo, Quartermain!' sang out Good. "'You frightened him!' This made me very angry, for, if possible to avoid it, I hate to miss in public. When a man is master of only one art, he likes to keep up his reputation in that art. 
Moved quite out of myself at my failure, I did a rash thing. Rapidly covering the general as he ran, I let drive with the second barrel. Instantly the poor man threw up his arms and fell forward onto his face. This time I had made no mistake, and I say it as a proof of how little we think of others when our own safety, pride, or reputation is in question, I was brute enough to feel delighted at the sight. The regiments who had seen the feat cheered wildly at this exhibition of the white man's magic, which they took as an omen of success, while the force the general had belonged to, which indeed, as we ascertained afterwards, he had commanded, fell back in confusion. Sir Henry and Good now took up their rifles and began to fire the latter industrially browning the dense mass before him with another Winchester repeater, and I also had another shot or two, with the result, so far as we could judge, that we put some six or eight men hors de combat before they were out of range. Just as we stopped firing, there came an ominous roar from our far right. Then a similar roar rose on our left, the other two divisions were engaging us. At the sound, the mass of men before us opened out a little and advanced towards the hill and up the spit of bare grassland at a slow trot, singing a deep-throated song as they ran. We kept up a steady fire from our rifles as they came, Ignosi joining in occasionally, and accounted for several men. But, of course, we produced no more effect upon that mighty rush of armed humanity than he who throws pebbles does on the breaking wave. On they came, with a shout and the clashing of spears. Now they were driving in the pickets we had placed among the rocks at the foot of the hill. After that, the advance was a little slower, for though as yet we had offered no serious opposition, the attacking forces must climb uphill and they came slowly to save their breath. Our first line of defense was about halfway down the side of the slope, our second fifty yards further back, while our third occupied the edge of the plateau. On they stormed, shouting their war cry, Twala! Twala! Chile! Chile! Twala! Twala! Smite! Smite! Ignosi, Ignosi, Chile, Chile, answered our people. They were quite close now, and the Twalas, or throwing knives, began to flash backwards and forwards, and now with an awful yell the battle closed in. To and fro swayed the mass of struggling warriors, men falling fast as leaves in an autumn wind. But before long the superior weight of the attacking forces began to tell and our first line of defense was slowly pressed back till it merged into the second. Here the struggle was very fierce, but again our people were driven back and up, till at length, within twenty minutes of the commencement of the fight, our third line came into action. But by this time the assailants were very much exhausted, and besides had lost many men killed and wounded, and to break through that third impenetrable hedge of spears proved beyond their powers. For a while the seething lines of savages 
swung backwards and forwards in the fierce ebb and flow of battle, and the issue was doubtful. Sir Henry watched the desperate struggle with a kindling eye, and then without a word he rushed off, followed by Good, and flung himself into the hottest of the fray. As for myself, I stopped where I was. The soldiers caught sight of his tall form as he plunged into battle, and there rose a cry of Nanzia Inkubu, Nanzia Unkungoglovo, here is the elephant, Chile, Chile. From that moment the end was no longer in doubt. Inch by inch, fighting with splendid gallantry, the attacking force was pressed back down the hillside, till at last it retreated upon its reserves in something like confusion. At that instant, too, a messenger arrived to say that the left attack had been repulsed, and I was just beginning to congratulate myself, believing that the affair was over for the present, when, to our horror, we perceived our men who had been engaged in the right defense being driven towards us across the plain, followed by swarms of the enemy who had evidently succeeded at this point. Ignosi, who was standing by me, took in the situation at a glance and issued a rapid order. Instantly the reserve regiment around us, the Greys, extended itself. Again Ignosi gave a word of command, which was taken up and repeated by the captains, and in another second, to my intense disgust, I found myself involved in a furious onslaught upon the advancing foe. Getting as much as I could behind Ignosi's huge frame, I made the best of a bad job, and toddled along to be killed as though I liked it. In a minute or two, we were plunging through the flying groups of our men, who at once began to reform behind us, and then I am sure I do not know what happened. All I can remember is a dreadful rolling noise of the meeting of shields, and the sudden apparition of a huge ruffian whose eyes seemed literally to be staring out of his head, making straight at me with a bloody spear. But, I say it with pride, I rose, or rather sank, to the occasion. It was one before which most people would have collapsed once and for all. Seeing that if I stood where I was I must be killed, as the horrid apparition came I flung myself down in front of him so cleverly that, being unable to stop himself, he took a header right over my prostrate form. Before he could rise again, I had risen and settled the matter from behind with my revolver. Shortly after this somebody knocked me down, and I remember no more of that charge. When I came to I found myself back at the copy, with Good bending over me holding some water in a gourd. "'How do you feel, old fellow?' he asked anxiously. I got up and shook myself before replying. "'Pretty well, thank you,' I answered. "'Thank heavens! When I saw them carry you in, I felt quite sick. I thought you were done for.' "'Not this time, my boy. I fancy I only got a rap on the head, which knocked me stupid. How has it ended?' "'They are repulsed at every point for a while.' The loss is dreadfully heavy. We have quite two thousand killed and wounded, and they must have lost three. Look, there's a sight, and he pointed to the long lines of men advancing by fours. In the center of every group of four and being borne by it 
was a kind of hide tray, of which a Kukuana force always carries a quantity, with a loop for a handle at each end. On these trays, and their numbers seemed endless, lay wounded men, who as they arrived were hastily examined by the medicine men, of whom ten were attached to a regiment. If the wound was not of a fatal character, the sufferer was taken away and attended to as carefully as circumstances would allow. But if, on the other hand, the injured man's condition proved hopeless, what followed was very dreadful, though doubtless it may have been the truest mercy. One of the doctors, under pretense of carrying out an examination, swiftly opened an artery with a sharp knife, and in a minute or two the sufferer expired painlessly. There were many cases that day in which this was done. In fact, it was done in the majority of cases when the wound was in the body, for the gash made by the entry of the enormously broad spears used by the Kukuanas generally rendered recovery impossible. In most instances the poor sufferers were already unconscious, and in others the fatal nick of the artery was inflicted so swiftly and painlessly that they did not seem to notice it. Still, it was a ghastly sight, and one from which we were glad to escape. Indeed, I never remember anything of the kind that affected me more than seeing these gallant soldiers thus put out of pain by the red-handed medicine men. Except, indeed, on one occasion when, after an attack, I saw a force of Swazis burying their hopelessly wounded alive. Hurrying from this dreadful scene to the further side of the copy, we found Sir Henry, who still held a battle-axe in his hand, Ignosi, Enfadus, and one or two of the chiefs in deep consultation. "'Thank heaven, here you are, Quartermain. I can't quite make out what Ignosi wants to do. It seems that though we have beaten off the attack, Twala is now receiving large reinforcements and is showing a disposition to invest us with the view of starving us out. "'That's awkward.' Yes, especially as Enfadus says that the water supply has given out. My lord, that is so, said Enfadus. The spring cannot supply the wants of so great a multitude, and it is failing rapidly. Before night we shall all be thirsty. Listen, Macumazahn, thou art wise, and hast doubtless seen many wars in the lands from whence thou camest, that is, if indeed they make wars in the stars. Now tell us, what shall we do? Twala has brought up many fresh men to take the place of those who have fallen. Yet Twala has learnt his lesson. The hawk did not think to find the heron ready, but our beak has pierced his breast. He fears to strike at us again. We too are wounded, and he will wait for us to die. He will wind himself round us like a snake round a buck, and fight the fight of sit-down. I hear thee, I said. So, Macumazan, thou seest we have no water here, and but a little food, and we must choose between these three things, to languish like a starving lion in his den, or to strive to break away towards the north, or, 
and here he rose and pointed towards the dense mass of our foes, to launch ourselves straight at Twala's throat. Inkubu, the great warrior, for today he fought like a buffalo in a net, and Twala's soldiers went down before his axe like young corn before the hail, and with these eyes I saw it. Inkubu says charge, but the elephant is ever prone to charge. Now what says Macumazan, the wily old fox, who has seen much and loves to bite his enemy from behind? The last word is in Ignosi, the king, for it is a king's right to speak of war. But let us hear thy voice, O Macumazan, who watches by night, and the voice, too, of him of the transparent eye. What sayest thou, Ignosi? I asked. Nay, my father, answered our quondam servant, who now, clad as he was in the full panoply of savage war, looked every inch a warrior king. Do thou speak, and let me, who am but a child in wisdom besides thee, hearken to thy words. Thus adjured, after taking hasty counsel with Good and Sir Henry, I delivered my opinion briefly to the effect that, being trapped, our best chance, especially in view of the failure of our water supply, was to initiate an attack upon Twala's forces. Then I recommended that the attack should be delivered at once, before our wounds grew stiff, and also before the sight of Twala's overpowering force caused the hearts of our soldiers to wax small like fat before a fire. Otherwise, I pointed out, some of the captains might change their minds, and making peace with Twala, desert to him, or even betray us into his hands. This expression of opinion seemed, on the whole, to be favorably received. Indeed, among the Kukuanas, my utterances met with a respect which has never been accorded to them before or since. But the real decision as to our plans lay with Ignosi, who, since he had been recognized as rightful king, could exercise the almost unbounded rights of sovereignty, including, of course, the final decision on matters of generalship, and it was to him that all eyes were now turned. At length, after a pause, during which he appeared to be thinking deeply, he spoke. Inkibu, Makumazan, and Buguan, brave white men, and my friends, Infadus, my uncle, and chiefs, my heart is fixed. I will strike at Twala this day, and set my fortunes on the blow, I and my life, my life and your lives also. Listen, thus will I strike. Ye see how the hill curves round like the half-moon, and how the plain runs like a green tongue towards us within the curve. We see, I answered. Good, it is now midday, and the men eat and rest after the toil of battle. When the sun has turned and traveled a little way towards the darkness, let thy regiment, my uncle, advance with one other down to the great tongue, and it shall be that when Twala sees it, he will hurl his force against it to crush it. But the spot is narrow, and the regiments can come against thee one at a time only. 
so may they be destroyed one by one, and the eyes of all Twala's army shall be fixed upon a struggle the like of which has not been seen by living man. And with thee, my uncle, shall go Inkerbu, my friend, that when Twala sees his battle-axe flashing in the first rank of the greys, his heart may grow faint. And I will come with the second regiment, that which follows thee, so that if ye are destroyed as it might happen, there may yet be a king left to fight for, and with me shall come Macumazahn the wise. It is well, O king, said Infadus, apparently contemplating the certainty of the complete annihilation of his regiment with perfect calmness. Truly these Kukuanas are a wonderful people. Death has no terror for them when it is incurred in the course of duty. And whilst the eyes of the magnitude of Twala's soldiers are thus fixed upon the fight, went on Ignosi, behold, one-third of the men who are left alive to us, that is, about six thousand, shall creep along the right horn of the hill, and fall upon the left flank of Twala's forces, and one-third shall creep along the left horn, and fall upon Twala's right flank, and when I see that the horns are ready to toss Twala, then will I, with the men who remain to me, charge home in Twala's face. And if fortune goes with us, the day will be ours, and before night drives her black oxen from the mountains to the mountains, we shall sit in peace at Loo. And now let us eat and make ready, and in Fadus, do thou prepare." that the plan be carried out without fail. And stay, let my white father, Buguan, go with the right horn, that his shining eye may give courage to the captains. The arrangements for attack thus briefly indicated were set in motion with a rapidity that spoke well for the perfection of the Kukuana military system. Within little more than an hour, rations had been served out and devoured. The divisions were formed, the scheme of onslaught was explained to the leaders, and the whole force, numbering about 18,000 men, was ready to move, with the exception of a guard left in charge of the wounded. Presently Good came up to Sir Henry and myself. "'Good-bye, you fellows,' he said. "'I am off with the right wing, according to orders.' "'And so I have come to shake hands in case we should not meet again, you know,' he added significantly. "'We shook hands in silence, and not without the exhibition of as much emotion as Anglo-Saxons are wont to show.' "'It is a queer business,' said Sir Henry, his deep voice shaking a little. "'And I confess I never expect to see tomorrow's sun.' So far as I can make out the greys with whom I am to go, are to fight until they are wiped out, in order to enable the wings to slip around unawares and outflank Twala. Well, so be it. At any rate, it will be a man's death. Goodbye, old fellow. God bless you. I hope you will pull through and live to collar the diamonds. "'But if you do, take my advice, and don't have anything more to do with pretenders.' "'In another second, Good had wrung us both by the hand and gone. "'And then Infadus came up 
and led off Sir Henry to his place in the forefront of the greys. Whilst with many misgivings, I departed with Ignosi to my station in the second attacking regiment. End of chapter 13 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 14 The Last Stand of the Greys In a few more minutes the regiments destined to carry out the flanking movements had tramped off in silence, keeping carefully to the lee of the rising ground in order to conceal their advance from the keen eyes of Twala's scouts. Half an hour or more was allowed to elapse between the setting out of the horns or wings of the army before any stir was made by the greys and their supporting regiment, known as the buffaloes, which formed its chest and were destined to bear the brunt of the battle. Both of these regiments were almost perfectly fresh and of full strength, the greys having been in reserve in the morning and having lost but a small number of men in sweeping back that part of the attack which had proved successful in breaking the line of defense on the occasion when I charged with them and was stunned for my pains. As for the buffaloes, they had formed the third line of defense on the left, and since the attacking force at that point had not succeeded in breaking through the second, they had scarcely come into action at all. Infadus, who was a wary old general, and knew the absolute importance of keeping up the spirits of his men on the eve of such a desperate encounter, employed the pause in addressing his own regiment, the Greys, in poetical language, explaining to them the honor that they were receiving in being put thus in the forefront of the battle, and in having the great white warrior from the stars to fight with them in their ranks and promising large rewards of cattle and promotion to all who survived in the event of Ignosi's arms being successful. I looked down the long lines of waving black plumes and stern faces beneath them, and sighed to think that within one short hour most, if not all, of those magnificent veteran soldiers, not a man of whom was under forty years of age, would be laid dead or dying in the dust. It could not be otherwise. They were being condemned, with that wise recklessness of human life which marks the great general, and often saves his forces and attains his ends to certain slaughter, in order to give their cause and the remainder of the army a chance of success. They were foredoomed to die, and they knew the truth, it was to be their task to engage regiment after regiment of Twala's army on the narrow strip of green beneath us till they were exterminated or till the wings found a favorable opportunity for their onslaught. And yet they never hesitated, nor could I detect a sign of fear upon the face of a single warrior. There they were, going to certain death, 
about to quit the blessed light of day forever, and yet able to contemplate their doom without a tremor. Even at that moment I could not help contrasting their state of mind with my own, which was far from comfortable, and breathing a sigh of envy and admiration. Never before had I seen such an absolute devotion to the idea of duty, and such a complete indifference to its bitter fruits. "'Behold your king!' ended old Infadus, pointing to Ignosi. "'Go fight and fall for him, as it is the duty of brave men, "'and cursed and shameful forever be the name of him "'who shrinks from death for his king, or who turns his back to the foe. "'Behold your king, chiefs, captains, and soldiers.' Now do your homage to the sacred snake, and then follow on, that Incubu and I may show you a road to the heart of Twala's host. There was a moment's pause, then suddenly a murmur arose from the serried phalanxes before us, a sound like the distant whisper of the sea, caused by gentle tapping of the handles of six thousand spears against the holder's shields. Slowly it swelled, till its growing volume deepened and widened into a roar of rolling noise that echoed like thunder against the mountains and filled the air with heavy waves of sound. Then it decreased, and by faint degrees died away into nothing, and suddenly out crashed the royal salute. Ignosi, I thought to myself, might well be a proud man that day, for no Roman emperor ever had such a salutation from gladiators about to die. Ignosi acknowledged this magnificent act of homage by lifting his battle-axe, and then the greys filed off in a triple-line formation, each line containing about 1,000 fighting men, exclusive of officers. When the last companies had advanced some five hundred yards, Ignosi put himself at the head of the buffaloes, which regiment was drawn up in a similar threefold formation, and gave the word to march, and off we went, I, needless to say, uttering the most heartfelt prayers that I might emerge from that entertainment with a whole skin. Many a queer position have I found myself in, but never before in one quite so unpleasant as the present, or one in which my chance of coming off safe was smaller. By the time that we reached the edge of the plateau, the greys were already halfway down the slope ending in the tongue of grassland that ran up into the bend of the mountain, something as the frog of a horse's foot runs up into the shoe. The excitement in Twala's camp on the plain beyond was very great, and regiment after regiment was starting forward at a long swinging trot in order to reach the root of the tongue of land before the attacking force could emerge into the plain of Loo. This tongue, which was some four hundred yards in depth, even at its root or widest part 
was not more than 650 paces across, while at its tip it scarcely measured 90. The greys, who, in passing down the side of the hill, and on to the tip of the tongue had formed into a column, on reaching the spot where it broadened out again, reassumed their triple-line formation, and halted dead. Then we, that is, the buffaloes, moved down the tip of the tongue and took our stand in reserve, about one hundred yards behind the last line of the greys, and on slightly higher ground. Meanwhile we had leisure to observe Twala's entire force, which evidently had been reinforced since the morning attack, and could not now, notwithstanding their losses, number less than forty thousand, moving swiftly up towards us. But as they drew near the root of the tongue they hesitated, having discovered that only one regiment could advance into the gorge at a time, and that there, some seventy yards from the mouth of it, unassailable except in front on account of the high walls of boulder-strewn ground on each side, stood the famous regiment of greys, the pride and glory of the Kukuana army, ready to hold the way against their power as the three Romans once held the bridge against thousands. They hesitated, and finally stopped their advance. There was no eagerness to cross spears with these three grim ranks of warriors, who stood so firm and ready. Presently, however, a tall general, wearing the customary headdress of nodding ostrich plumes, appeared, attended by a group of chiefs and orderlies, being, I thought, none other than Twala himself. He gave an order, and the first regiment, raising a shout, charged up towards the greys, who remained perfectly still and silent till the attacking troops were within forty yards, and a volley of twalas or throwing knives came rattling among their ranks. Then suddenly, with a bound and a roar, they sprang forward with uplifted spears, and the regiment met in deadly strife. Next second the roll of the meeting shields came to our ears like the sound of thunder, and the plain seemed to be alive with flashes of light reflected from the shimmering spears. To and fro swung the surging mass of struggling, stabbing humanity, but not for long. Suddenly the attacking lines began to grow thinner, and then with a slow, long heave the greys passed over them, just as a great wave heaves up its bulk and passes over a sunken ridge. It was done. That regiment was completely destroyed. But the greys had but two lines left now. A third of their number were dead. Closing up shoulder to shoulder, once more they halted in silence and awaited attack. And I was rejoiced to catch sight of Sir Henry's yellow beard as he moved to and fro arranging the ranks. So he was yet alive. Meanwhile, we moved on to the ground of the encounter, which was cumbered by about four thousand prostrate human beings, dead, dying, and wounded, and literally stained red with blood. Ignosi issued an order, which was rapidly passed down to the ranks, to the effect that none of the enemy's wounded 
were to be killed. And so far as we could see, this command was scrupulously carried out. It would have been a shocking sight if we had found time to think of such things. But now a second regiment, distinguished by white plumes, kilts, and shields, was moving to the attack of the two thousand remaining greys, who stood waiting in the same ominous silence as before, till the foe was within forty yards or so, when they hurled themselves with irresistible force upon them. Again there came the awful roll of the meeting shields, and as we watched the tragedy repeated itself. But this time the issue was left longer in doubt, Indeed, it seemed for a while almost impossible that the Greys should again prevail. The attacking regiment, which was formed of young men, fought with the utmost fury, and at first seemed by sheer weight to be driving the veterans back. The slaughter was truly awful, hundreds falling every minute, and from among the shouts of the warriors and the groans of the dying, set to the music of clashing spears, came a continuous hissing undertone of Sji, Sji, the note of triumph of each victor as he passed his assegai through and through the body of his fallen foe. But perfect discipline and steady and unchanging valor can do wonders, and one veteran soldier is worth two young ones, as soon became apparent in the present case. For just when we thought that it was all over with the greys, and were preparing to take their place so soon as they made room by being destroyed, I heard Sir Henry's deep voice ringing out through the din, and caught a glimpse of his circling battle-axe as he waved it high above his plumes. Then came a change. The greys ceased to give. They stood still as a rock against which the furious waves of spearmen broke again and again, only to recoil. Presently they began to move once more, forward this time. As they had no firearms, there was no smoke, and we could see it all. Another minute, and the onslaught grew fainter. Ah, these are men indeed. They will conquer again, called out Ignosi, who was grinding his teeth with excitement at my side. See, it is done. Suddenly... Like puffs of smoke from the mouth of a cannon, the attacking regiment broke away in flying groups, their white headdresses streaming behind them in the wind, and left their opponents victors, indeed, but, alas, no more a regiment. Of the gallant triple line, which forty minutes before had gone into action three thousand men strong, there remained at most some six hundred blood-spattered men. The rest were underfoot. And yet they cheered and waved their spears in triumph. And then, instead of falling back upon us as we expected, they ran forward for a hundred yards or so, after the flying groups of foemen, took possession of a rising knoll of ground, and, resuming their triple formation, formed a threefold ring around its base. And there, thanks be to heaven, standing on the top of the mound for a minute, I saw Sir Henry, apparently unharmed, and with him our old friend Infadus. 
Then Twala's regiments rolled down upon the doomed band, and once more the battle closed in. As those who read this history will probably long ago have gathered, I am, to be honest, a bit of a coward, and certainly in no way given to fighting, though somehow it has often been my lot to get into unpleasant situations and to be obliged to shed man's blood. But I have always hated it, and kept my own blood as undiminished in quantity as possible, sometimes by a judicious use of my heels. At this moment, however, for the first time in my life, I felt my bosom burn with martial ardor. Warlike fragments from the Ingoldsby legends, together with numbers of sanguinary verses in the Old Testament, sprang up in my brain like mushrooms in the dark. My blood, which hitherto had been half frozen with horror, went beating through my veins, and there came upon me a savage desire to kill and spare not. I glanced round at the serried ranks of warriors behind us, and somehow, all in an instant, I began to wonder if my face looked like theirs. There they stood, their hands twitching, their lips apart, the fierce features instinct with the hungry lust of battle, and in the eyes a look like the glare of a bloodhound when after a long pursuit he sights his quarry. Only Ignosi's heart, to judge from his comparative self-possession, seemed to all appearances to beat as calmly as ever beneath his leopard-skin cloak, though even he still ground his teeth. I could bear it no longer. Are we to stand here till we put out roots, Umbopa, Ignosi, I mean, while Twyla swallows our brothers yonder? I asked. Nay, Macumazahn, was the answer. See, now is the ripe moment. Let us pluck it. As he spoke, a fresh regiment rushed past the ring upon the little mound, and, wheeling round, attacked it from the hither side. Then, lifting his battle-axe, Ignosi gave the signal to advance, and, screaming the wild Kukuwana war-cry, the buffaloes charged home with a rush like the rush of the sea. What followed immediately on this, it is out of my power to tell, all I can remember is an irregular yet ordered advance that seemed to shake the ground, a sudden change of front and forming up on the part of the regiment against which the charge was directed, then an awful shock, a dull roar of voices, and a continuous flashing of spears seen through a red mist of blood. When my mind cleared, I found myself standing inside the remnant of the greys near the top of the mound, and just behind no less a person than Sir Henry himself. How I got there I had at the moment no idea, but Sir Henry afterwards told me that I was borne up by the first furious charge of the buffaloes almost to his feet, and then left, as they in turn were pressed back. Thereon he dashed out of the circle and dragged me into shelter. As for the fight that followed, who can describe it? Again and again the multitudes surged against our momentarily lessening circle, and again and again we beat them back. The stubborn spearmen still made good the dark impenetrable wood, 
each stepping where his comrade stood the instant that he fell, as someone or other beautifully says. It was a splendid thing to see those brave battalions come on time after time over the barriers of their dead, sometimes lifting corpses before them to receive our spear thrusts, only to leave their own corpses to swell the rising piles. It was a gallant sight to see that old warrior, Infadus, as cool as though he were on parade, shouting out orders, taunts, and even jests, to keep up the spirit of his few remaining men. And then, as each charge rolled on, stepping forward to wherever the fighting was thickest, to bear his share in its repulse. And yet more gallant was the vision of Sir Henry, whose ostrich plumes had been shorn off by a spear thrust, so that his long yellow hair streamed out in the breeze behind him. There he stood, the great Dane, for he was nothing else, his hands, his axe, and his armor, all red with blood, and none could live before his stroke. Time after time I saw it sweeping down, as some great warrior ventured to give him battle, and as he struck it he shouted, Ahoy! Ahoy! Like his berserkir forefathers, and the blow went crashing through shield and spear, through headdress, hair and skull, till at last none would of their own will come near the great white Umtagati, the wizard who killed and failed not. But suddenly there rose a cry of Twala! Itwala! And out of the press sprang forward none other than the gigantic one-eyed king himself, also armed with battle-axe and shield, and clad in chain armor. "'Where art thou, Inkaboo, thou white man, who slewest Scragga, my son? See if thou canst slay me,' he shouted, and at the same time hurled a tola straight at Sir Henry, who fortunately saw it coming, and caught it on his shield, which it transfixed, remaining wedged in the iron plate behind the hide. Then, with a cry, Twala sprang forward straight at him, and with his battle-axe struck him such a blow upon the shield that the mere force and shock of it brought Sir Henry, strong man as he is, down upon his knees. But at this time the matter went no further, for that instant there rose from the regiments pressing round us something like a shout of dismay, and on looking up I saw the cause. To the right and to the left, the plain was alive with the plumes of charging warriors. The outflanking squadrons had come to our relief. The time could not have been better chosen. All Twala's army, as Ignosi predicted would be the case, had fixed their attention on the bloody struggle which was raging round the remnant of the greys and that of the buffaloes, who were now carrying on a battle of their own at a little distance, which two regiments had formed the chest of our army. It was not until our horns were about to close upon them that they had dreamed of their approach, for they believed these forces to be hidden in reserve upon the crest of the moon-shaped hill. And now, before they could even assume a proper formation for defense, the outflanking impies had leapt like greyhounds on their flanks. 
in five minutes the fate of the battle was decided. Taken on both flanks, and dismayed at the awful slaughter inflicted upon them by the greys and buffaloes, Twala's regiments broke into flight, and soon the whole plain between us and Lou was scattered with groups of running soldiers making good their retreat. As for the hosts that had so recently surrounded us and the buffaloes, they melted away as though by magic, and presently we were left standing there like a rock from which the sea has retreated. But what a sight it was! Around us the dead and dying lay in heaped-up masses, and of the gallant greys there remain but ninety-five men upon their feet. More than three thousand four hundred had fallen in this one regiment, most of them never to rise again. Men, said Infadus calmly, as between the intervals of binding a wound on his arm he surveyed what remained to him of his corps, ye have kept up the reputation of your regiment, and this day's fighting will be well spoken of by your children's children. Then he turned round and shook Sir Henry Curtis by the hand. Thou art a great captain, Inkibu, he said simply. I have lived a long time among warriors, and have known many a brave one. Yet have I never seen a man like unto thee. At this moment the buffaloes began to march past our position on the road to Lou, and as they went a message was brought to us from Ignosi requesting Infadus, Sir Henry, and myself to join them. Accordingly, orders having been issued to the remaining ninety men of the greys to employ themselves in collecting the wounded, we joined Ignosi, who informed us that he was pressing on to Lou to complete the victory by capturing Twala, if that should be possible. Before we had gone far, suddenly we discovered the figure of Good sitting on an ant heap about one hundred paces from us. Close beside him was the body of a Kukuana. "'He must be wounded,' said Sir Henry anxiously. As he made the remark, an untoward thing happened. The dead body of the Kukuana soldier or rather what had appeared to be his dead body, suddenly sprang up, knocked Good head over heels off the ant heap, and began to spear him. We rushed forward in terror, and as we drew near, we saw the brawny warrior making dig after dig at the prostrate Good, who at each prod jerked all his limbs into the air. Seeing us coming, the Kukuana gave one final and most vicious dig, and with a shout of, Take that, wizard, bolted away. Good did not move, and we concluded that our poor comrade was done for. Sadly we came towards him, and were astonished to find him pale and faint indeed, but with a serene smile upon his face, and his eyeglass still fixed in his eye. "'Capital armor, this!' he murmured, on catching sight of our faces bending over him. "'How sold that beggar must have been!' And then he fainted. On examination we discovered that he had been seriously wounded in the leg by Atola, 
in the course of the pursuit, but that the chain armor had prevented his last assailant's spear from doing anything more than bruise him badly. It was a merciful escape. As nothing could be done for him at the moment, he was placed on one of the wicker shields used for the wounded and carried along with us. On arriving before the nearest gate of Lu, we found one of our regiments watching it in obedience to orders received from Ignosi. The other regiments were in the same way guarding the different exits to the town. The officer in command of this regiment saluted Ignosi as king and informed him that Twala's army had taken refuge in the town, whither Twala himself had also escaped. But he thought that they were thoroughly demoralized and would surrender. Thereupon Ignosi, after taking counsel with us, sent forward heralds to each gate, ordering the defenders to open, and promising on his royal word life and forgiveness to every soldier who laid down his arms but saying that if they did not do so before nightfall, he would certainly burn the town and all within its gates. This message was not without its effect. Half an hour later, amid the shouts and cheers of the buffaloes, the bridge was dropped across the fosse, and the gates upon the further side were flung open. Taking due precautions against treachery, we marched on into the town. All along the roadways stood thousands of dejected warriors, their heads drooping, and their shields and spears at their feet, who, headed by their officers, saluted Ignosi as king as he passed. On we marched, straight to Twala's corral. When we reached the great space where a day or two previously we had seen the review and the witch hut, we found it deserted. No, not quite deserted, for there on the further side, in front of his hut, sat Twala himself, with but one attendant, Gagool. It was a melancholy sight to see him seated, his battle-axe and shield by his side, his chin upon his mailed breast, with but one old crone for companion, and notwithstanding his crimes and misdeeds, a pang of compassion shot through me as I looked upon Twala, thus fallen from his high estate. Not a soldier of all his armies, not a courtier out of the hundreds who had cringed round him, not even a solitary wife, remained to share his fate or have the bitterness of his fall. Poor savage, he was learning the lesson which fate teaches to most of us who live long enough, that the eyes of mankind are blind to the discredited, and that he who is defenseless and fallen finds few friends and little mercy. Nor, indeed, in this case, did he deserve any. Filing through the corral gate, we marched across the open space to where the ex-king sat. When within about fifty yards of him the regiment was halted, and accompanied by only a small guard, we advanced towards him, Gagool reviling us bitterly as we came. As we drew near, Twala, for the first time, lifted his plumed head and fixed his one eye, which seemed to flash with suppressed fury almost as brightly as the great diamond round his forehead, 
upon his successful rival, Ignosi. Hail, O king, he said with bitter mockery, thou who hast eaten of my bread, and now by the aid of the white man's magic hast seduced my regiments and defeated mine army. Hail! What fate hast thou in store for me, O king? The fate thou gavest to my father, whose throne thou hast sat on these many years, was the stern answer. It is good. I will show thee how to die, that thou mayest remember it against thine own time. See, the sun sinks in blood, and he pointed with his battle-axe towards the setting orb. It is well that my son should go down in its company. And now, O king, I am ready to die, but I crave the boon of the Kukuwana royal house to die fighting. Note, it is a law amongst the Kukuanas that no man of the direct royal blood can be put to death unless by his own consent, which is, however, never refused. He is allowed to choose a succession of antagonists to be approved by the king, with whom he fights, till one of them kills him, Alan Quatermain. Thou canst refuse it, or even those cowards who fled today will hold thee shamed. It is granted. Choose with whom wilt thou fight. Myself I cannot fight with thee, for the king fights not except in war. Twala's somber eye ran up and down our ranks, and I felt, as for a moment it rested on myself, that the position had developed a new horror. What if he chose to begin by fighting me? What chance should I have against a desperate savage six feet five high and broad in proportion? I might as well commit suicide at once. Hastily I made up my mind to decline the combat, even if I were hooted out of Kukuana land as a consequence. It is, I think, better to be hooted than to be quartered with a battle-axe. Presently Twala spoke. Inkibu, what sayest thou? Shall we end what we began today? Or shall I call thee coward, white even to the liver? Nay, interposed Ignosi hastily, thou shalt not fight with Enkibu. Not if he is afraid, said Twala. Unfortunately, Sir Henry understood this remark, and the blood flamed up in his cheeks. I will fight him, he said. He shall see if I am afraid. For heaven's sake, I entreated, don't risk your life against that of a desperate man. Anybody who saw you today will know that you are brave enough. I will fight him, was the sullen answer. No living man shall call me a coward. I am ready now. And he stepped forward and lifted his axe. I wrung my hands over this absurd piece of Quixoteism. But if he was determined on this deed, of course I could not stop him. Fight not, my white brother, said Ignosi, laying his hand affectionately on Sir Henry's arm. Thou hast fought enough, 
and if aught befell thee at his hands, it would cut my heart in twain. I will fight, Ignosi, was Sir Henry's answer. It is well, Inkubu. Thou art a brave man. It will be a good fray. Behold, Twala, the elephant is ready for thee. The ex-king laughed savagely, and stepping forward faced Curtis. For a moment they stood thus, and the light of the sinking sun caught their stalwart frames and clothed them both in fire. They were a well-matched pair. Then they began to circle round each other, their battle-axes raised. Suddenly Sir Henry sprang forward and struck a fearful blow at Twala, who stepped to one side. So heavy was the stroke that the striker half overbalanced himself, a circumstance of which his antagonist took a prompt advantage. Circling his massive battle-axe round his head, he brought it down with tremendous force. My heart jumped into my mouth. I thought that the affair was already finished. But no, with a quick upward movement of the left arm, Sir Henry interposed his shield between himself and the axe, with the result that its outer edge was shorn away, the axe falling on his left shoulder, but not heavily enough to do any serious damage. In another moment, Sir Henry got in a second blow, which was also received by Twala upon his shield. Then followed blow upon blow that were, in turn, either received upon the shields or avoided. The excitement grew intense. The regiment which was watching the encounter forgot its discipline, and drawing near, shouted and groaned at every stroke. Just at this time, too, Good, who had been laid upon the ground by me, recovered from his faint, and sitting up, perceived what was going on. In an instant he was up, and catching hold of my arm, hopped about from place to place on one leg, dragging me after him and yelling encouragements to Sir Henry. "'Go to it, old fellow!' he hallooed. "'That was a good one! Give it him amidships!' and so on. Presently Sir Henry, having caught a fresh stroke upon his shield, hit out with all his force. The blow cut through Twala's shield and through the tough chain armor behind it, gashing him in the shoulder. With a yell of pain and fury, Twala returned the blow with interest, and such was his strength, shore right through the rhinoceros's horn handle of his antagonist's battle-axe, strengthened as it was with bands of steel, wounding Curtis in the face. A cry of dismay rose from the buffaloes as our hero's broad axe-head fell to the ground, and Twala, again raising his weapon, flew at him with a shout. I shut my eyes. When I opened them again, it was to see Sir Henry's shield lying on the ground, and Sir Henry himself with his great arms twined round Twala's middle. To and fro they swung, hugging each other like bears, straining with all their mighty muscles for dear life and dearer honor. 
With a supreme effort, Twala swung the Englishman clean off his feet, and down they came together, rolling over and over on the lime paving. Twala striking out at Curtis's head with the battle-axe, and Sir Henry trying to drive the tola he had drawn from his belt through Twala's armor. It was a mighty struggle, and an awful thing to see. "'Get his axe!' yelled Good, and perhaps our champion heard him. At any rate, dropping the tola, he snatched at the axe, which was fastened to Twala's wrist by a strip of buffalo hide, and still rolling over and over, they fought for it like wildcats, drawing their breath in heavy gasps. Suddenly the hide string burst, and then with a great effort Sir Henry freed himself, the weapon remaining in his hand. Another second and he was upon his feet, the red blood streaming from the wound in his face, and so was Twala. Drawing the heavy Tola from his belt, he reeled straight at Curtis and struck him in the breast. The stab came home true and strong, but whoever it was who made that chain armor, he understood his art, for it withstood the steel. Again, Twala struck out with a savage yell, and once more the sharp knife rebounded, and Sir Henry went staggering back. Once more Twala came on, and as he came our great Englishman gathered himself together, and swinging the big axe round his head with both hands, hit at him with all his force. There was a shriek of excitement from a thousand throats, and behold, Twala's head seemed to spring from his shoulders. Then it fell and came rolling and bounding along the ground towards Ignosi, stopping just at his feet. For a second the corpse stood upright. Then, with a dull crash, it came to the earth, and the gold torque from its neck rolled away across the pavement. As it did so, Sir Henry, overpowered by faintness and loss of blood, fell heavily across the body of the dead king. In a second he was lifted up, and eager hands were pouring water on his face. Another minute, and the gray eyes opened wide. He was not dead. Then I, just as the sun sank, stepping to where Twala's head lay in the dust, unloosed the diamond from the dead brows, and handed it to Ignosi. Take it, I said, lawful king of the Kukuanas, king by birth and victory. Ignosi bound the diadem upon his brows. Then advancing, he placed his foot upon the broad chest of his headless foe, and broke out into a chant, or rather a paean of triumph, so beautiful and yet so utterly savage that I despair of being able to give an adequate version of his words. Once I heard a scholar with a fine voice read aloud from the Greek poet Homer, and I remember that the sound of the rolling lines seemed to make my blood stand still. Ignosi's chant, uttered as it was in a language as beautiful and sonorous as the old Greek, produced exactly the same effect on me although I was exhausted with toil and many emotions. Now, 
he began, now our rebellion is swallowed up in victory, and our evil doing is justified by strength. In the morning the oppressors arose and stretched themselves. They bound on their harnesses and made them ready to war. They rose up and tossed their spears. The soldiers called to the captains, Come, lead us, and the captains cried to the king, Direct thou the battle. They laughed in their pride, twenty thousand men, and yet a twenty thousand. Their plumes covered the valleys as the plumes of a bird cover her nest. They shook their shields and shouted, yea, they shook their shields in the sunlight. They lusted for battle and were glad. They came up against me. Their strong ones ran swiftly to slay me. They cried, ha, ha. He is as one already dead. Then I breathed on them, and my breath was as the breath of a wind, and lo, they were not. My lightnings pierced them. I licked up their strength with the lightning of my spears. I shook them to the ground with the thunder of my shoutings. They broke. They scattered. They were gone as the mists of the morning. They are food for the kites and the foxes, and the place of battle is fat with their blood. Where are the mighty ones who rose up in the morning? Where are the proud ones who tossed their spears and cried, He is as a man already dead? They bow their heads, but not in sleep. They are stretched out, but not in sleep. They are forgotten. They have gone into the blackness, they dwell in the dead moons. Yea, others shall lead away their wives, and their children shall remember them no more. And I, the king, like an eagle, I have found my eyrie. Behold, far have I flown in the night season, yet have I returned to my young at the daybreak. Shelter ye under the shadow of my wings, O people, and I will comfort you, and ye shall not be dismayed. Now is the good time, the time of spoil. Mine are the cattle on the mountains, mine are the virgins in the corrals. The winter is overpassed with storms, the summer is ready to come with flowers. Now evil shall cover up her face. Now mercy and gladness shall dwell in the land. Rejoice, rejoice, my people. Let all the stars rejoice in that this tyranny is trodden down, in that I am the king. Ignosi ceased his song, and out of the gathering gloom came back the deep reply. Thou art the king. Thus was my prophecy to the herald fulfilled, and within the forty-eight hours Twala's headless corpse was stiffening at Twala's gate. End of chapter 14 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 15 Good Falls Sick After the fight was ended, Sir Henry and Good were carried into Twala's hut, where I joined them. They were both utterly exhausted by exertion and loss of blood, and indeed my own condition was little better. I am very wiry, and can stand more fatigue than most men, probably on account of my light weight and long training. But that night I was quite done up, and, as is always the case when exhausted, that old wound which the lion gave me began to pain. Also my head was aching violently from the blow I had received in the morning when I was knocked senseless. Altogether, a more miserable trio than we were that evening it would have been difficult to discover, and our only comfort lay in the reflection that we were exceedingly fortunate to be there to feel miserable, instead of being stretched dead upon the plain, as so many thousands of brave men were that night, who had risen well and strong in the morning. Somehow, with the assistance of the beautiful Fulata, who, since we had been the means of saving her life, had constituted herself our handmaiden, and especially goods. We managed to get off the chain shirts, which had certainly saved the lives of two of us that day. As I expected, we found that the flesh underneath was terribly contused, for though the steel links had kept the weapons from entering, they had not prevented them from bruising. Both Sir Henry and Good were a mass of contusions, and I was by no means free. As a remedy, Fulata brought us some pounded green leaves with an aromatic odor, which, when applied as a plaster, gave us considerable relief. But though the bruises were painful, they did not give us such anxiety as Sir Henry's and Good's wounds. Good had a hole right through the fleshy part of his beautiful white leg, from which he had lost a great deal of blood, and Sir Henry, with other hurts, had a deep cut over the jaw, inflicted by Twala's battle-axe. Luckily, Good is a very decent surgeon, and so soon as his small box of medicines was forthcoming, having thoroughly cleansed the wounds, he managed to stitch up first Sir Henry's and then his own pretty satisfactorily, considering the imperfect light given by the primitive Kukuana lamp in the hut. Afterwards, he plentifully smeared the injured places with some antiseptic ointment, of which there was a pot in the little box, and we covered them with the remains of a pocket handkerchief which we possessed. Meanwhile, Fulata had prepared us some strong broth, for we were too weary to eat. This we swallowed, and then threw ourselves down on the piles of magnificent carasses or fur rugs, which were scattered about the dead king's great hut. By a very strange instance of the irony of fate, it was on Twala's own couch, and wrapped in Twala's own particular carass, that Sir Henry, the man who had slain him, slept that night. I say slept, but after that day's work, sleep was indeed difficult. 
To begin with, in truth, the air was full of farewells to the dying and mournings for the dead. From every direction came the sound of the wailing of women whose husbands, sons, and brothers had perished in the battle. No wonder that they wailed, for over twelve thousand men, or nearly a fifth of the Kukuana army, had been destroyed in that awful struggle. It was heart-rending to lie and listen to their cries for those who never would return, and it made me understand the full horror of the work done that day to further man's ambition. Towards midnight, however, the ceaseless crying of the women grew less frequent, till at length the silence was only broken at intervals of a few minutes by a long piercing howl that came from a hut in our immediate rear, which, as I afterwards discovered, proceeded from Gagool, caning over the dead King Twala. After that I got a little fitful sleep, only to wake from time to time with a start, thinking that I was once more an actor in the terrible events of the last twenty-four hours. Now I seemed to see that warrior whom my hand had sent to his last account charging at me on the mountaintop. Now I was once more in that glorious ring of greys, which made its immortal stand against all Twala's regiments upon the little mound. And now again I saw Twala's plumed and gory head roll past my feet, with gnashing teeth and glaring eyes. At last, somehow or other, the night passed away. But when dawn broke, I found that my companions had slept no better than myself. Good, indeed, was in a high fever, and very soon afterwards began to grow light-headed, and also, to my alarm, to spit blood, the result, no doubt, of some internal injury inflicted during the desperate efforts made by the Kukuana warrior on the previous day to force his big spear through the chain armor. Sir Henry, however, seemed pretty fresh, notwithstanding his wound on the face, which made eating difficult and laughter an impossibility, though he was so sore and stiff that he could scarcely stir. About eight o'clock we had a visit from Infadus, who appeared but little the worse, tough old warrior that he was, for his exertions in the battle although he informed us that he had been up all night. He was delighted to see us, but much grieved at Good's condition, and shook our hands cordially. I noticed, however, that he addressed Sir Henry with a kind of reverence, as though he were something more than man, and indeed, as we afterwards found out, the great Englishman was looked on throughout Kukuanaland as a supernatural being. No man, the soldiers said, could have fought as he fought, or, at the end of a day of such toil and bloodshed, could have slain Twala, who, in addition to being the king, was supposed to be the strongest warrior in the country, in single combat, shearing through his bull neck at a stroke. Indeed, that stroke became proverbial in Kukuana land and any extraordinary blow or feat of strength was henceforth known as Inkaboo's blow. 
Infadus told us also that all Twala's regiments had submitted to Ignosi, and that like submissions were beginning to arrive from chiefs in the outlying country. Twala's death at the hands of Sir Henry had put an end to all further chances of disturbances, for Scraga had been his only legitimate son, so there was no rival claimant to the throne left alive. I remarked that Ignosi had swum to power through blood. The old chief shrugged his shoulders. Yes, he answered, but the Kukuwana people can only be kept cool by letting their blood flow sometimes. Many are killed indeed, but the women are left, and others must soon grow up to take the places of the fallen. After this, the land would be quiet for a while. Afterwards, in the course of the morning, we had a short visit from Ignosi, on whose brows the royal diadem was now bound. As I contemplated him advancing with kingly dignity, an obsequious guard following his steps, I could not help recalling to my mind the tall Zulu who had presented himself to us at Durban some months back, asking to be taken into our service and reflecting on the strange revolutions of the wheel of fortune. "'Hail, O king,' I said, rising. "'Yes, Makumazan, king at last, by the might of your three right hands,' was the ready answer. "'All was,' he said, "'going well, and he hoped to arrange a great feast in two weeks' time in order to show himself to the people.' I asked him what he had settled to do with Gagool. She is the evil genius of the land, he answered, and I shall kill her, and all the witch doctors with her. She has lived so long that none can remember when she was not very old, and she it is who has always trained the witch hunters and made the land wicked in the sight of the heavens above. Yet she knows much, I replied. It is easier to destroy knowledge, Ignosi, than to gather it. That is so, he said thoughtfully. She, and only she, knows the secret of the three witches yonder, whither the great road runs, where the kings are buried, and the silent ones sit. Yes, and the diamonds are. Forget not thy promise, Ignosi, thou must lead us to the mines, even if thou hast to spare Gagool alive to show the way. I will not forget, Makumazan, and I will think on what thou sayest. After Ignosi's visit I went to see Good, and found him quite delirious. The fever set up by his wound seemed to have taken a firm hold of his system and to be complicated with an internal injury. For four or five days his condition was most critical. Indeed, I believe it firmly, that had it not been for Fulanta's indefatigable nursing, he must have died. Women are women all the world over, whatever their color. Yet somehow it seemed curious to watch this dusky beauty bending night and day over the fevered man's couch, 
and performing all the merciful errands of a sick-room swiftly, gently, and with as fine an instinct as that of a trained hospital nurse. For the first night or two I tried to help her, and so did Sir Henry, as soon as his stiffness allowed him to move. But Fulata bore our interference with impatience, and finally insisted upon our leaving him to her, saying that our movements made him restless, which I think was true. Day and night she watched him and tended him, giving him his only medicine, a native cooling drink made of milk, in which was infused juice from the bulb of a species of tulip, and keeping the flies from settling on him. I can see the whole picture now as it appeared night after night by the light of our primitive lamp. Good, tossing to and fro, his features emaciated, his eyes shining large and luminous, and jabbering nonsense by the yard, and seated on the ground by his side, her back resting against the wall of the hut, the soft-eyed, shapely Kukuana beauty, her face, weary as it was with her long vigil, animated by a look of infinite compassion, or was it something more than compassion? For two days we thought that he must die, and crept about with heavy hearts. Only Fulata would not believe it. He will live, she said. For three hundred yards or more, around Twala's chief hut, where the sufferer lay, there was silence. For by the king's order, all who lived in the habitations behind it, except Sir Henry and myself, had been removed, lest any noise should come to the sick man's ears. One night, it was the fifth of Good's illness, as was my habit, I went across to see how he was doing before turning in for a few hours. I entered the hut carefully. The lamp placed upon the floor showed the figure of Good tossing no more but lying quite still. So it had come at last. In the bitterness of my heart I gave something like a sob. Hush! came from the patch of dark shadow behind Good's head. Then, creeping closer, I saw that he was not dead, but sleeping soundly, with Fulata's taper fingers clasped tightly in his poor white hand. The crisis had passed, and he would live. He slept like that for eighteen hours, and I scarcely like to say it, for I fear I should not be believed, but during the entire period did this devoted girl sit by him, fearing that if she moved and drew away her hand it would wake him. What she must have suffered from cramp and weariness, to say nothing of want of food, nobody will ever know. But it is the fact that, when at last he woke, she had to be carried away. Her limbs were so stiff that she could not move them. After the turn had once been taken, Good's recovery was rapid and complete. It was not till he was nearly well that Sir Henry told him all he owed to Fulata, and when he came to the story of how she sat by his side for eighteen hours, fearing lest by moving she would wake him, the honest sailor's eyes filled with tears. He turned and went straight to the hut, 
where Fulata was preparing the midday meal, for we were back in our old quarters now, taking me with him to interpret in case he could not make his meaning clear to her, though I am bound to say that she understood him marvelously as a rule, considering how extremely limited was his foreign vocabulary. Tell her, said Good, that I owe her my life, and that I will never forget her kindness to my dying day. I interpreted, and under her dark skin she actually seemed to blush, turning to him with one of those swift and graceful motions that in her always reminded me of the flight of a wild bird. Fulata answered softly, glancing at him with her large brown eyes. Nay, my lord, my lord forgets. Did he not save my life, and am I not my lord's handmaiden? It will be observed that the young lady appeared entirely to have forgotten the share which Sir Henry and myself had taken in her preservation from Twala's clutches. But that is the way of women. I remember my dear wife was just the same. Well, I retired from that little interview sad at heart. I did not like Miss Fulata's soft glances, for I knew the fatal amorous propensities of sailors in general, and of good in particular. There are two things in the world, as I have found out, which cannot be prevented. You cannot keep a Zulu from fighting, or a sailor from falling in love upon the slightest provocation. It was a few days after this last occurrence that Ignosi held his great indaba, or council, and was formally recognized as king by the Indunas, or headmen, of Kukuanaland. The spectacle was a most imposing one, including, as it did, a grand review of troops. On this day the remaining fragments of the greys were formally paraded, and in the face of the army thanked for their splendid conduct in battle. To each man the king made a large present of cattle, promoting them one and all to the rank of officers in the new corps of greys, which was in process of formation. An order was also promulgated throughout the length and breadth of Kukuanaland, that whilst we honored the country by our presence, we three were to be greeted with the royal salute, and to be treated with the same ceremony and respect that was by custom accorded to the king. Also, the power of life and death was publicly conferred upon us. Ignosi, too, in the presence of his people, reaffirmed the promises which he had made, to the effect that no man's blood should be shed without trial, and that witch-hunting should cease in the land. When the ceremony was over, we waited upon Ignosi, and informed him that we were now anxious to investigate the mystery of the mines to which Solomon's road ran, asking him if he had discovered anything about them. My friends, he answered, I have discovered this. It is there that the three great figures sit, who here are called the Silent Ones, and to whom Twala would have offered the girl Fulata as a sacrifice. It is there, too, in a great cave deep in the mountain, 
that the kings of the land are buried. There ye shall find Twala's body, sitting with those who went before him. There also is a deep pit, which at some time long dead men dug out, mayhap for the stones ye speak of, such as I have heard men in Natal tell of at Kimberley. There, too, in the place of death is a secret chamber, known to none but the king and Gagool. But Twala, who knew it, is dead, and I know it not, nor know I what is in it. Yet there is a legend in the land that once, many generations ago, a white man crossed the mountains, and was led by a woman to the secret chamber, and shown the wealth hidden in it, but before he could take it she betrayed him, and he was driven by the king of that day back to the mountains, and since then no man has entered the place. The story is surely true, Ignosi, for on the mountains we found the white man, I said. Yes, we found him, and now I have promised you that if ye can come to that chamber, and the stones are there, the gem upon thy forehead proves they are there, I put in, pointing to the great diamond I had taken from Twala's dead brows. Mayhap, if they are there, he said, ye shall have as many as ye can take hence, if indeed ye would leave me, my brothers. First we must find the chamber, said I. There is but one who can show it to thee, Gagool. And if she will not, then she must die, said Ignosi sternly. I have saved her alive, but for this. Stay, she shall choose. And calling to a messenger, he ordered Gagool to be brought before him. In a few minutes she came, hurried along by two guards, whom she was cursing as she walked. Leave her said the king to the guards. But as soon as their support was withdrawn, the withered old bundle, for she looked more like a bundle than anything else, out of which her two bright and wicked eyes gleamed like those of a snake, sank in a heap onto the floor. "'What will ye with me, Ignosi?' she piped. "'Ye dare not touch me. If ye touch me, I will slay you as ye sit.' "'Beware of my magic!' "'Thy magic could not save Twala, old she-wolf, "'and it cannot hurt me,' was the answer. "'Listen, I will this of thee, "'that thou reveal to us the chamber "'where are the shining stones.' "'Ha-ha!' she piped. "'None know its secret but I, "'and I will never tell thee.' THE WHITE DEVILS SHALL GO HENCE EMPTY-HANDED. THOU SHALT TELL ME. I WILL MAKE THEE TELL ME. HOW, O KING, THOU ART GREAT, BUT CAN THY POWER WRING THE TRUTH FROM A WOMAN? IT IS DIFFICULT, YET WILL I DO SO. HOW, O KING? Nay, thus, if thou tellest not, thou shalt slowly die. 
she shrieked in terror and fury. "'Ye dare not touch me! Man, ye know not who I am! How old think ye am I? I knew your fathers and your fathers' fathers' fathers. When the country was young, I was here. When the country grows old, I shall still be here!' I cannot die unless I be killed by chance, for none dare slay me. Yet will I slay thee. See, Gagool, mother of evil, thou art so old that thou canst no longer love thy life. What can life be to such a hag as thou, who hast no shape, nor form, nor hair, nor teeth? Has not save wickedness and evil eyes. It will be mercy to make an end of thee, Gagool. Thou fool! shrieked the old fiend. Thou accursed fool! Deemest thou that life is sweet only to the young? It is not so, and not thou knowest of the heart of man to think it. To the young, indeed, death is sometimes welcome for the young can feel. They love and suffer, and it wrings them to see their beloved pass to the land of shadows. But the old feel not, they love not, and <laughs> they laugh to see another go out into the dark. <laughs> they laugh to see the evil that is done under the stars. All they love is life, the warm, warm sun, and the sweet, sweet air. They are afraid of the cold, afraid of the cold and the dark. Ha, ha, ha! And the old hag writhed in ghastly merriment on the ground. Cease thine evil talk and answer me, said Ignosi angrily. Wilt thou show the place where the stones are, or wilt thou not? If thou wilt not, thou diest, even now. And he seized a spear and held it over her. I will not show it. Thou darest not kill me. Darest not. He who slays me will be accursed forever. Slowly Ignosi brought down the spear till it pricked the prostrate heap of rags. With a wild yell, Gagool sprang to her feet, then fell again and rolled upon the floor. Nay, I will show thee, only let me live. Let me sit in the sun and have a bit of meat to suck, and I will show thee. It is well. I thought that I should find a way to reason with thee. Tomorrow shalt thou go with Infadus and my white brothers to the place. And beware how thou failest, for if thou showest it not, then thou shalt slowly die. I have spoken. I will not fail, Ignosi. I always keep my word. <laughs> Once before a woman showed the chamber to a white man, and behold, evil befell him. And here her wicked eyes glinted. Her name was Gagool also. Perchance I was that woman. 
"'Thou liest,' I said. "'That was ten generations ago.' "'Mayhap, mayhap, when one lives long, one forgets. "'Perhaps it was my mother's mother who told me. "'Surely her name was Gagul also. "'But, Mark, ye will find in the place where the bright things are "'a bag of hide full of stones.' The man filled that bag, but he never took it away. Evil befell him. I say, evil befell him. Perhaps it was my mother's mother who told me it will be a merry journey. We can see the bodies of those who died in the battle as we go. Their eyes will be gone by now, and their ribs will be hollow. Ha ha ha! End of chapter 15 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 16 The Place of Death It was already dark on the third day after the scene described in the previous chapter when we camped in some huts at the foot of the Three Witches, as the Triangle of Mountains is called, to which Solomon's Great Road runs. Our party consisted of our three selves and Fulata, who waited on us, especially on good, Infadus, Gagul, who was borne along in a litter, inside which she could be heard muttering and cursing all day long, and a party of guards and attendants. The mountains, or rather the three peaks of the mountain, for the mass was evidently the result of a solitary upheaval, were, as I have said, in the form of a triangle, of which the base was towards us, one peak being on our right, one on our left, and one straight in front of us. Never shall I forget the sight afforded by those three towering peaks in the early sunlight of the following morning. High, high above us, up into the blue air, soared their twisted snow wreaths, Beneath the snow line the peaks were purple with heaths, and so were the wild moors that ran up the slope towards them. Straight before us the white ribbon of Solomon's Great Road stretched away uphill to the foot of the center peak, about five miles from us, and there stopped. It was its terminus. I had better leave the feelings of intense excitement with which we set out on our march that morning, to the imagination of those who read this history. At last we were drawing near to the wonderful mines that had been the cause of the miserable death of the old Portuguese Dom three centuries ago, of my poor friend, his ill-starred descendant, and also, as we feared, of George Curtis, Sir Henry's brother. Were we destined, after all that we had gone through, to fare any better? Evil befell them, as that old fiend Gagool said. Would it also befall us? 
Somehow, as we were marching up that last stretch of beautiful road, I could not help feeling a little superstitious about the matter, and so I think did good and Sir Henry. For an hour and a half or more we tramped on up the heather-fringed way, going so fast in our excitement that the bearers of Gagool's hammock could scarcely keep pace with us, and its occupant piped out to us to stop. "'Walk more slowly, white men,' she said, projecting her hideous shriveled countenance between the grass curtains and fixing her gleaming eyes upon us. "'Why will you run to meet the evil that shall befall you, ye seekers after treasure?' And she laughed that horrible laugh which always sent a cold shiver down my back, and for a while quite took the enthusiasm out of us. However, on we went, till we saw before us, and between ourselves and the peak, a vast circular hole with sloping sides, three hundred feet or more in depth, and quite half a mile around. "'Can't you guess what this is?' I said to Sir Henry and Good, who were staring in astonishment at the awful pit before us. They shook their heads. "'Then it is clear that you have never seen the diamond diggings at Kimberley. "'You may depend on it that this is Solomon's diamond mine.' "'Pointing to the strata of stiff blue clay "'which were yet to be seen among the grass and bushes "'that clothed the sides of the pit. "'The formation is the same. "'I'll be bound that if we went down there "'we should find pipes of soapy brecciated rock. "'Look, too.' and I pointed to a series of worn flat slabs of stone that were placed on a gentle slope below the level of a watercourse, which in some past age had been cut out of the solid rock. If those are not tables once used to wash the stuff, I'm a Dutchman. At the edge of this vast hole, which was none other than the pit marked on the old Dom's map, the great road branched into two and circumvented it, in many places, by the way, this surrounding road was built entirely out of blocks of stone, apparently with the object of supporting the edges of the pit and preventing falls of reef. Along this path we pressed, driven by curiosity, to see what were the three towering objects which we could discern from the hither side of the great gulf. As we drew near, we perceived that they were colossi of some sort or another, and rightly conjectured that before us sat the three silent ones that are held in such awe by the Kukuana people. But it was not until we were quite close to them that we recognized the full majesty of these silent ones. There, upon huge pedestals of dark rock, sculptured with rude emblems of the phallic worship, separated from each other by a distance of forty paces, and looking down the road which crossed some sixty miles of plain to Loo, were three colossal seated forms, two male and one female, each measuring about thirty feet from the crown of its head to the pedestal. The female form, which was nude, was of great though severe beauty, but unfortunately the features had been injured by centuries of exposure to the weather. Rising from either side of her head were the points of a crescent. The two male colossi, on the contrary, were draped, and presented a terrifying cast of features, especially the one to our right, 
which had the face of a devil. That to our left was serene in countenance, but the calm upon it seemed dreadful. It was the calm of that inhuman cruelty, Sir Henry remarked, which the ancients attributed to being potent for good, who could yet watch the sufferings of humanity, if not without rejoicing, at least without sorrow. These three statues form a most awe-inspiring trinity, as they sit there in their solitude and gaze out across the plain forever. Contemplating these silent ones, as the Kukuanas call them, an intense curiosity again seized us to know whose were the hands which had shaped them, who was it that had dug the pit and made the road. Whilst I was gazing and wondering, suddenly it occurred to me, being familiar with the Old Testament, that Solomon went astray after strange gods, the names of three of whom I remembered, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon. And I suggested to my companions that the figures before us might represent these false and exploded divinities. Hmm, said Sir Henry, who is a scholar, having taken a high degree in classics at college. There may be something in that. Ashtoreth of the Hebrews was the Astarte of the Phoenicians, who were the great traders of Solomon's time. Astarte, who afterwards became the Aphrodite of the Greeks, was represented with horns like the half-moon, and there on the brow of the female figure are distinct horns. Perhaps these colossi were designed by some Phoenician official who managed the mines. Who can say? Note, compare Milton, Paradise Lost, Book One. With these in troop, came Ashtoreth, whom the Phoenicians called Astarte, Queen of Heaven, with crescent horns, to whose bright image nightly by the moon Sidonian virgins paid their vows and songs. Before we had finished examining these extraordinary relics of remote antiquity, Enfadus came up, and having saluted the silent ones by lifting his spear, "'asked us if we intended entering the place of death at once, "'or if we would wait till after we had taken food at midday. "'If we were ready to go at once, "'Gagool had announced her willingness to guide us. "'As it was not later than eleven o'clock, "'driven to it by a burning curiosity, "'we announced our intention of proceeding instantly, "'and I suggested that in case we should be detained in the cave,' we should take some food with us. Accordingly, Gagool's litter was brought up, and that lady herself assisted out of it. Meanwhile, Fulata, at my request, stored some biltong, or dried game flesh, together with a couple of gourds of water, in a reed basket with a hinged cover. Straight in front of us, at a distance of some fifty paces from the backs of the colossi, rose a sheer wall of rock, eighty feet or more in height, that gradually sloped upwards till it formed the base of the lofty, snow-wreathed peak, which soared into the air three thousand feet above us. 
as soon as she was clear of her hammock, Gagool cast one evil grin upon us, and then, leaning on a stick, hobbled off towards the face of this wall. We followed her till we came to a narrow portal, solidly arched, that looked like the opening of a gallery of a mine. Here Gagool was waiting for us, still with that evil grin upon her horrid face. "'Now, white men from the stars,' she piped, "'great warriors, Inkibu, Buguan, and Makumazan the wise. "'Are you ready? "'Behold, I am here to do the bidding of my lord the king, "'and to show you the store of bright stones.' <laughs> "'We are ready,' I said. "'Good, good, make strong your hearts to bear what ye shall see. "'Comest thou too, Infidus, thou who didst betray thy master?' "'Infidus frowned as he answered. "'Nay, I come not. It is not for me to enter there. "'But thou, Gagool, curb thy tongue, and beware how thou dealest with my lords.' At thy hands will I require them. And if a hair of them be hurt, Gagool, beest thou fifty times a witch, thou shalt die. Hearest thou? I hear, Infadus, I know thee. Thou didst ever love big words. When thou was a babe, I remember, thou didst threaten thine own mother. That was but the other day. "'But fear not, fear not, I live only to do the bidding of the king. "'I have done the bidding of many kings in Fadus, till in the end they did mine. <laughs> "'I go to look upon their faces once more, and Twala's also. "'Come on, come on, here is the lamp.' "'And she drew a large gourd full of oil, and fitted with a rush wick from under her fur cloak.' "'Art thou coming, Fulata?' "'In his villainous kitchen Kukuana, "'in which he had been improving himself "'under that young lady's tuition. "'I fear, my lord,' the girl answered timidly. "'Then give me the basket.' "'Nay, my lord, whither thou goest, "'there I go also.' "'The deuce you will,' thought I to myself. That may be rather awkward if we ever get out of this. Without further ado, Gagool plunged into the passage, which was wide enough to admit of two walking abreast, and quite dark. We followed the sound of her voice as she piped to us to come on, in some fear and trembling, which was not allayed by the flutter of a sudden rush of wings. Hello! What's that? Hallowed Good. "'Somebody hit me in the face!' "'Bats,' said I. "'On you go.' "'When, so far as we could judge, "'we had gone some fifty paces, "'we perceived that the passage was growing faintly light. "'Another minute, and we were in perhaps the most wonderful place "'that the eyes of living man have beheld. "'Let the reader picture to himself the hall of the vastest cathedral he ever stood in, windowless indeed, 
but dimly lighted from above, presumably by shafts connected with the outer air, and driven in the roof, which arched away a hundred feet above our heads. And he will get some idea of the size of the enormous cave in which we found ourselves, with the difference that this cathedral, designed by nature, was loftier and wider than any built by man. But its stupendous size was the least of the wonders of the place, for running in rows down its length were gigantic pillars of what looked like ice, but were in reality huge stalactites. It is impossible for me to convey any idea of the overpowering beauty and grandeur of these pillars of white spar, some of which were not less than twenty feet in diameter at the base, and sprang up in lofty and yet delicate beauty sheer to the distant roof. Others, again, were in process of formation. On the rock floor there was in these cases what looked, Sir Henry said, exactly like a broken column in an old Grecian temple, whilst high above, depending from the roof, the point of a huge icicle could be dimly seen. Even as we gazed, we could hear the process going on, for presently with a tiny splash a drop of water would fall from the far-off icicle onto the column below. On some columns the drops only fell once in two or three minutes, and in these cases it would be an interesting calculation to discover how long, at that rate of dripping, it would take to form a pillar, say, 80 feet by 10 in diameter. That the process, in at least one instance, was incalculably slow, the following example will suffice to show. Cut on one of these pillars, we discovered the crude likeness of a mummy, by the head of which sat what appeared to be the figure of an Egyptian god, doubtless the handiwork of some old-world laborer in the mine. This work of art was executed at the natural height at which an idle fellow, be he Phoenician workman or British cad, is in the habit of trying to immortalize himself at the expense of nature's masterpieces, namely about five feet from the ground. Yet at the time that we saw it, which must have been nearly 3,000 years after the date of the execution of the carving, the column was only eight feet high, and was still in process of formation, which gives a rate of growth of a foot to a thousand years, or an inch and a fraction to a century. This we knew because, as we were standing by it, we heard a drop of water fall. Sometimes the stalagmites took strange forms, presumably where the dropping of the water had not always been on the same spot. Thus one huge mass, which must have weighed a hundred tons or so, was in the shape of a pulpit, beautifully fretted over outside with a design that looked like lace. Others resembled strange beasts, and on the sides of the cave were fan-like ivory tracings, such as the frost leaves upon a pane. Out of the vast main aisle there opened here and there smaller caves, exactly, Sir Henry said, as chapels open out of great cathedrals. Some were large, but one or two, 
and this is a wonderful instance of how nature carries out her handiwork by the same unvarying laws, utterly irrespective of size, were tiny. One little nook, for instance, was no larger than an unusually big doll's house, and yet it might have been a model for the whole place, for the water dropped, tiny icicles hung, and spar columns were forming in just the same way. We had not, however, enough time to examine this beautiful cavern so thoroughly as we should have liked to do, since unfortunately Gagool seemed to be indifferent as to stalactites and only anxious to get her business over. This annoyed me the more, as I was particularly anxious to discover, if possible, by what system the light was admitted into the cave, and whether it was done by the hand of man or by that of nature that this was done. Also, if the place had been used in any way in ancient times, as seemed probable. However, we consoled ourselves with the idea that we would investigate it thoroughly on our way back, and followed on at the heels of our uncanny guide. On she led us, straight to the top of the vast and silent cave, where we found another doorway, not arched as the first was, but square at the top, something like the doorways of Egyptian temples. "'Are ye prepared to enter the place of death, white men?' asked Gagool, evidently with a view to making us feel uncomfortable. "'Lead on, Macduff,' said Good solemnly, trying to look as though he was not at all alarmed, as indeed we all did except Fulata, who caught Good by the arm for protection. "'This is getting rather ghastly,' said Sir Henry, peeping into the dark passageway. "'Come on, Quartermain, Signoris Prioress.' We mustn't keep the old lady waiting, and he politely made way for me to lead the van, for which inwardly I did not bless him. Tap, tap, went old Gagool's stick down the passage, as she trotted along, chuckling hideously, and still overcome by some unaccountable presentiment of evil, I hung back. Come get on, old fellow said Good, or we shall lose our fair guide. Thus adjured, I started down the passage, and after about twenty paces found myself in a gloomy apartment, some forty feet long by thirty broad and thirty high, which in some past age evidently had been hollowed by hand labor out of the mountain. This apartment was not nearly so well lighted as the vast stalactite anti-cave, and at the first glance all I could discern was a massive stone table running down its length, with a colossal white figure at its head, and life-sized white figures all round it. Next I discovered a brown thing, seated on the table in the center, and in another moment my eyes grew accustomed to the light, and I saw what all these things were, and was tailing out of the place, as hard as my legs could carry me. I am not a nervous man in the general way, and very little troubled with superstitions, of which I have lived to see the folly. But I am free to own that this sight quite upset me, 
and had it not been that Sir Henry caught me by the collar and held me, I do honestly believe that in another five minutes I should have been outside the stalactite cave, and that a promise of all the diamonds in Kimberley would not have induced me to enter it again. But he held me tight, so I stopped because I could not help myself. Next second, however, his eyes became accustomed to the light, and he let go of me, and began to mop the perspiration off his forehead. As for good, he swore feebly, while Fulata threw her arms around his neck and shrieked. Only Gagool chuckled loud and long. It was a ghastly sight. There at the end of the long stone table, holding in his skeleton fingers a great white spear, sat death himself, draped in the form of a colossal human skeleton, fifteen feet or more in height. High above his head he held the spear, as though in the act to strike. One bony hand rested on the stone table before him, in the position a man assumes on rising from his seat, whilst his frame was bent forward so that the vertebrae of the neck and the grinning, gleaming skull projected towards us, and fixed its hollow eye-places upon us, the jaws a little open, as though it were about to speak. "'Great heavens!' said I faintly at last. "'What can it be?' "'And what are those things?' asked Good, pointing to the white company round the table. "'And what on earth is that thing?' said Sir Henry, pointing to the brown creature seated on the table. "'He-he-he!' <laughs> laughed Gagool. "'To those who enter the hall of the dead, evil comes. "'He-he-he! <laughs> "'Come, Inkibu, brave in battle, come and see him thou slewest.' and the old creature caught Curtis's coat in her skinny fingers and led him towards the table. We followed. Presently she stopped and pointed at the brown object seated on the table. Sir Henry looked and started back with an exclamation, and no wonder, for there, quite naked, the head which Curtis's battle-axe had shorn from the body resting on its knees was the gaunt corpse of Twala, the last king of the Kukuanas. Yes, there, the head perched upon the knees, it sat in all its ugliness, the vertebrae projecting a full inch above the level of the shrunken flesh of the neck, for all the world like a black double of Hamilton Tigay. Now haste ye, my handmaidens, haste and see how he sits there and glowers with his head on his knee. Over the surface of the corpse there was gathered a thin glassy film that made its appearance yet more appalling, for which we were at the moment quite unable to account, till presently we observed that from the roof of the chamber the water fell steadily, drip, drop, drip, onto the neck of the corpse, whence it ran down over the entire surface, and finally escaped into the rock through a tiny hole in the table. Then I guessed what the film was. Twala's body was being transformed into a stalactite. A look at the white forms seated on the stone bench which ran round that ghastly board confirmed this view. 
They were human bodies indeed, or rather they had been human. Now they were stalactites. This was the way in which the Kukuana people had, from time immemorial, preserved their royal dead. They petrified them. What the exact system might be, if there was any, beyond the placing of them for a long period of years under the drip, I never discovered, but there they sat, iced over and preserved forever by the silicious fluid. Anything more awe-inspiring than the spectacle of this long line of departed royalties, there were twenty-seven of them, the last being Ignosi's father, wrapped each of them in a shroud of ice-like spar, through which the features could be dimly discovered, and seated round that inhospitable board with death himself for a host, it is impossible to imagine. That the practice of thus preserving their kings must have been an ancient one is evident from the number, which, allowing for an average reign of fifteen years, supposing that every king who reigned was placed here, an improbable thing is some are sure to have perished in battle far from home, would fix the date of its commencement at four and a quarter centuries back. But the colossal death, who sits at the head of this board, is far older than that, and, unless I am mistaken, owes his origin to the same artist who designed the three colossi. He is hewn out of a single stalactite, and, looked at as a work of art, is most admirably conceived and executed. Good, who understands such things, declared that, so far as he could see, the anatomical design of the skeleton is perfect down to the smallest bones. My own idea is that this terrific object was a freak of fancy on the part of some old-world sculptor, and that its presence had suggested to the Kukuanas the idea of placing their royal dead under its awful presidency. Or perhaps it was set there to frighten away any marauders who might have designs upon the treasure chamber beyond. I cannot say. All I can do is describe it as it is, and the reader must form his own conclusion. Such, at any rate, was the white death and such were the white dead. End of chapter 16 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 17 Solomon's Treasure Chamber While we were engaged in recovering from our fright and in examining the grisly wonders of the place of death, Gagool had been differently occupied. Somehow or other, for she was marvelously active when she chose, she had scrambled onto the great table and made her way to where our departed friend Twala was placed, under the drip, to see suggested good how he was pickling, 
or for some dark purpose of her own. Then, after bending down to kiss his icy lips as though in affectionate greeting, she hobbled back, stopping now and again to address the remark, the tenor of which I could not catch, to one or other of the shrouded forms, just as you or I might welcome an old acquaintance. Having gone through this mysterious and horrible ceremony, she squatted herself down on the table immediately under the white death, and began, so far as I could make out, to offer up prayers. The spectacle of this wicked creature pouring out supplications, evil ones, no doubt, to the arch-enemy of mankind, was so uncanny that it caused us to hasten our inspection. "'Now, Gagool,' said I, in a low voice, somehow one did not dare to speak above a whisper in that place, "'Lead us to the chamber.' The old witch promptly scrambled down from the table. "'My lords are not afraid,' she said, leering up into my face. "'Lead on.' "'Good, my lords,' and she hobbled round to the back of the great death. "'Here is the chamber. Let my lords light the lamp and enter.' and she placed the gourd full of oil upon the floor, and leaned herself against the side of the cave. I took out a match, of which we still had a few in a box, and lit a rush wick, and then looked for the doorway. But there was nothing before us except the solid rock. Gagool grinned. The way is there, my lords. <laughs> Do not jest with us. I said sternly. I just not, my lord, see, and she pointed at the rock. As she did so, on holding up the lamp, we perceived that a mass of stone was rising slowly from the floor and vanishing into the rock above, where doubtless there is a good cavity prepared to receive it. The mass was of the width of a good-sized door, about ten feet high and not less than five feet thick. It must have weighed at least twenty or thirty tons, and was clearly moved upon some simple balance principle of counterweights, probably the same as that by which the opening and shutting of an ordinary modern window is arranged. How the principle was set in motion, of course, none of us saw. Gagool was careful to avoid this, but I have little doubt that there was some very simple lever, which was moved ever so little by pressure at a secret spot, thereby throwing additional weight onto the hidden counterbalances and causing the monolith to be lifted from the ground. Very slowly and gently the great stone raised itself, till at last it had vanished altogether, and a dark hole presented itself to us in the place which the door had filled. Our excitement was so intense as we saw the way to Solomon's treasure chamber thrown open at last that I, for one, began to tremble and shake. Would it prove a hoax after all, I wondered? Or was old da Silvestra right? Were there vast hordes of wealth hidden in that dark place? 
hordes which would make us the richest men in the whole world. We should know in a minute or two. "'Enter, white men from the stars,' said Gagool, advancing into the doorway. "'But first hear your servant, Gagool the Old. "'The bright stones that ye will see were dug out of the pit "'over which the silent ones are set, and stored here. "'I know not by whom, for that was done longer ago than even I remember.' "'But once has this place been entered since the time "'that those who hid the stones departed in haste, leaving them behind. "'The report of the treasure went down indeed "'among the people who lived in the country from age to age, "'but none knew where the chamber was, nor the secret of the door. "'But it happened that a white man reached this country from over the mountains.' Perchance he too came from the stars, and was well received by the king of that day. He it is who sits yonder, and she pointed to the fifth king at the table of the dead. And it came to pass that he and a woman of the country who was with him journeyed to this place, and that by chance the woman learnt the secret of the door. A thousand years might ye search, but ye should never find that secret. Then the white man entered with the woman, and found the stones, and filled with stones the skin of a small goat, which the woman had with her to hold food. And as he was going from the chamber, he took up one more stone, a large one, and held it in his hand. Here she paused. Well, I asked, breathless with interest, as we all were, what happened to Da Silvestra? The old hag started at the mention of his name. How knowest thou the dead man's name? she asked sharply, and then, without waiting for an answer, went on. None can tell what happened, but it came about that the white man was frightened, for he flung down the goatskin with the stones, and fled out with only the one stone in his hand. And that the king took, and it is the stone which thou, Makumazan, didst take from Twala's brow. Have none entered here since? I asked, peering again down the dark passage. None, my lords. Only the secret of the door has been kept, and every king has opened it, though he has not entered. There is a saying, that those who enter there will die within a moon, even as the white man died in the cave upon the mountain where ye found him, Makumazan, and therefore the kings do not enter. Ha <laughs> ha! Mine are true words! Our eyes met as she said it, and I turned sick and cold. How did the old hag know all these things? Enter, my lords. If I speak truth, the goatskin with the stones will lie upon the floor. And if there is truth as to whether it is death to enter here, that ye will learn afterwards. Ha, ha, ha! and she hobbled through the doorway, bearing the light with her. 
but I confess that once more I hesitated about following. "'Oh, confound it all,' said Good. "'Here goes. "'I am not going to be frightened by that old devil.' "'And followed by Fulata, "'who, however, evidently did not at all like the business, "'for she was shivering with fear, "'he plunged into the passage after Gagool, "'an example which we quickly followed.' A few yards down the passage, in the narrow way hewn out of the living rock, Gagool had paused and was waiting for us. "'See, my lords,' she said, holding the light before her. "'Those who stored the treasure here fled in haste and bethought them to guard against any who should find the secret of the door, but had not the time.' and she pointed to the large square blocks of stone, which to the height of two courses, about two feet three, had been placed across the passage with a view to walling it up. Along the side of the passage were similar blocks ready for use, and, most curious of all, a heap of mortar and a couple of trowels, which tools, so far as we had time to examine them, "'appeared to be of a similar shape and make "'to those used by workmen to this day. "'Here Fulata, who had been in a state of great fear "'and agitation throughout, "'said that she felt faint and could go no farther, "'but would wait there. "'Accordingly we sat her down on the unfinished wall, "'placing the basket of provisions by her side, "'and left her to recover.' Following the passage for about fifteen paces farther, we came suddenly to an elaborately painted wooden door. It was standing wide open. Whoever was last there had either not found the time to shut it, or had forgotten to do so. Across the threshold of this door lay a skin bag, formed of a goat skin, that appeared to be full of pebbles. "'White men!' sniggered Gagool, as the light from the lamp fell upon it. "'What did I tell you, that the white man who came here fled in haste, "'and dropped the woman's bag? Behold it! Look within also, "'and ye will find a water-gourd amongst the stones.' "'Good stooped down and lifted it. It was heavy and jingled.' "'By Jove, I believe it's full of diamonds,' he said, in an awed whisper. "'And indeed, the idea of a small goatskin full of diamonds is enough to awe anybody.' "'Go on,' said Sir Henry impatiently. "'Here, old lady, give me the lamp.' And taking it from Gagool's hand, he stepped through the doorway and held it high above his head. We pressed in after him, forgetful for the moment of the bag of diamonds, and found ourselves in King Solomon's treasure chamber. At first, all that the somewhat faint light given by the lamp revealed was a room hewn out of the living rock, and apparently not more than ten feet square. Next there came into sight, stored one on the other to the arch of the roof, a splendid collection of elephant tusks. How many of them there were we did not know, for of course we could not see to what depth they went, 
but there could not have been less than the ends of four or five hundred tusks of the first quality visible to our eyes. There alone was enough ivory to make a man wealthy for life. Perhaps, I thought, it was from this very store that Solomon drew the raw material for his great throne of ivory, of which there was not the like made in any kingdom. On the opposite side of the chamber were about a score of wooden boxes, something like Martini Henry ammunition boxes, only rather larger and painted red. "'There are the diamonds,' cried I. "'Bring the light!' Sir Henry did so, holding it close to the top box, of which the lid, rendered rotten by time even in that dry place, appeared to have been smashed in, probably by da Silvestra himself. Pushing my hand through the hole in the lid, I drew it out full, not of diamonds, but of gold pieces, of a shape that none of us had seen before, and with what looked like Hebrew characters stamped upon them. Ah, I said, replacing the coin. We shan't go back empty-handed, anyhow. There must be a couple of thousand pieces in each box, and there are eighteen boxes. I suppose this was the money to pay the workmen and merchants. Well, put in good, I think that is the lot. I don't see any diamonds unless the old Portuguese put them all into his bag. Let my lords look yonder where it is darkest, if they would find the stones, said Gagool, interpreting our looks. There my lords will find a nook, and three stone chests in the nook, two sealed and one open. Before translating this to Sir Henry, who carried the light, I could not resist asking how she knew these things if no one had entered the place since the white man generations ago. Amakumazan, the watcher by night, was the mocking answer. Ye who dwell in the stars, do ye not know that some live long, and that some have eyes which can see through rock? Ha, ha, ha! Look in that corner, Curtis, I said, indicating the spot Gagool had pointed out. Hello, you fellows, he cried. Here's a recess. Great heavens, see here. We hurried up to where he was standing in a nook, shaped something like a small bow window. Against the wall of this recess were placed three stone chests, each about two feet square. Two were fitted with stone lids. The lid of the third rested against the side of the chest, which was open. See, he repeated hoarsely, holding the lamp over the open chest. We looked, and for a moment could make nothing out, on account of a silvery sheen which dazzled us. When our eyes grew used to it, we saw that the chest was three parts full of uncut diamonds, most of them of considerable size. Stooping, I picked some up. Yes, there was no doubt of it. There was the unmistakable soapy feel about them. I fairly gasped as I dropped them. We are the richest men in the whole world, I said. Monte Cristo was a fool to us. 
"'We shall flood the market with diamonds,' said Good. "'Got to get them there first, suggested Sir Henry. "'We stood still with pale faces and stared at each other, "'the lantern in the middle and the glittering gems below, "'as though we were conspirators about to commit a crime, "'instead of being, as we thought, the most fortunate men on earth. "'He, he, he!' cackled old Gagool behind us as she flitted about like a vampire bat. "'There are the bright stones ye love, white men. As many as ye will, take them. Run them through your fingers. Eat of them. <laughs> Drink of them. <laughs> At that moment there was something so ridiculous to my mind at the idea of eating and drinking diamonds that I began to laugh outrageously an example which the others followed, without knowing why. There we stood and shrieked with laughter over the gems that were ours, which had been found for us thousands of years ago by the patient delvers in the great hole yonder, and stored for us by Solomon's long-dead overseer, whose name, perchance, was written in the characters stamped on the faded wax that yet adhered to the lids of the chest. Solomon never got them, nor David, or Dasovestra, nor anybody else. We had got them. There before us were millions of pounds worth of diamonds, and thousands of pounds worth of gold and ivory, only waiting to be taken away. Suddenly the fit passed off, and we stopped laughing. "'Open the other chests, white men!' croaked Gagool. There are surely more therein. Take your fill, white lords. Ha ha! Take your fill! Thus adjured, we set to work to pull up the stone lids on the other two. First, not without a feeling of sacrilege, breaking the seals that fastened them. Hurrah! They were full too, full to the brim. At least the second one was. No wretched, burglarious da Silvestra had been filling goatskins out of that. As for the third chest, it was only about a fourth full, but the stones were all picked ones, none less than twenty carats, and some of them as large as pigeon eggs. A good many of these bigger ones, however, we could see by holding them up to the light, were a little yellow, off-colored, as they call it at Kimberley. What we did not see, however, was the look of fearful malevolence that old Gagool favored us with as she crept, crept like a snake, out of the treasure chamber and down the passage towards the door of solid rock. Hark! Cry upon cry comes ringing up the vaulted path. It is Fulata's voice. Oh, Buguan, help! Help! THE STONE FALLS. LEAVE GO, GIRL, THEN. HELP! HELP! SHE HAS STABBED ME. BY NOW WE ARE RUNNING DOWN THE PASSAGE, AND THIS IS WHAT THE LIGHT FROM THE LAMP SHOWS US. THE DOOR OF THE ROCK IS CLOSING DOWN SLOWLY. IT IS NOT THREE FEET FROM THE FLOOR. NEAR IT STRUGGLE FULADA AND GAGOOL. The red blood of the former runs to her knee, but still the brave girl holds the old witch who fights like a wild cat. 
Ah, she is free. Fulata falls, and Gagool throws herself on the ground to twist like a snake through the crack of the closing stone. She is under. Ah, God, too late, too late. The stone nips her, and she yells in agony. Down, down it comes, all the thirty tons of it, slowly pressing her old body against the rock below. Shriek upon shriek, such as we have never heard. Then a long, sickening crunch, and the door was shut, just as, rushing down the passage, we hurled ourselves against it. It was all done in four seconds. Then we turned to Fulata. The poor girl was stabbed in the body, and I saw that she could not live long. Ah, Bougwan, I die, gasped the beautiful creature. She crept out, Gagool. I did not see her. I was faint, and the door began to fall. Then she came back and was looking up the path. I saw her come in through the slowly falling door and caught her and held her, and she stabbed me. And I die, Bougwan. Poor girl, poor girl, Good cried in his distress. And then, as he could do nothing else, he fell to kissing her. Bougwan, she said after a pause, is Makumazan there? It grows so dark I cannot see. Here I am, Fulata. Makumazan, be my tongue for a moment. I pray thee, for Bougwan cannot understand me, and before I go into the darkness I would speak to him a word. Say on, Fulata, I will render it. Say to my lord Bougwan that I love him, and that I am glad to die because I know that he cannot cumber his life with such as I am, for the sun may not mate with the darkness, nor the white with the black. Say that, since I saw him, at times I have felt as though there were a bird in my bosom, which would one day fly hence and sing elsewhere. Even now, though I cannot lift my hand, and my brain grows cold, I do not feel as though my heart were dying. It is so full of love that it could live ten thousand years and yet be young. Say that if I live again, mayhap I shall see him in the stars, and that I will search them all, though perchance there I should still be black, and he would still be white. Say, Nay, Makumazan, say no more, save that I love. Oh, hold me closer, Bugwan. I cannot feel thine arms. Chee, chee. She is dead. She is dead, muttered Good rising in grief 
the tears running down his honest face. "'You need not let that trouble you, old fellow,' said Sir Henry. "'Eh?' exclaimed Good. "'What do you mean?' "'I mean that you will soon be in a position to join her. "'Man, don't you see that we are buried alive?' Until Sir Henry uttered these words, I do not think that the full horror of what had happened had come home to us, preoccupied as we were with the sight of poor Fulata's end. But now we understood. The ponderous mass of rock had closed, probably forever, for the only brain which knew its secret was crushed to powder beneath its weight. This was a door that none could hope to force with anything short of dynamite in large quantities, and we were on the wrong side. For a few minutes we stood horrified there over the corpse of Fulata. All the manhood seemed to have gone out of us. The first shock of this idea of the slow and miserable end that awaited us was overpowering. We saw it all now. That fiend Gagool had planned this snare for us from the first. It would have been just the jest that her evil mind would have rejoiced in, the idea of the three white men, whom for some reason of her own she had always hated, slowly perishing of thirst and hunger in the company of the treasure they had coveted. Now I saw the point of that sneer of hers about eating and drinking the diamonds. Probably somebody had tried to serve the poor old Dom in the same way when he abandoned the skin full of jewels. This will never do, said Sir Henry hoarsely. The lamp will soon go out. Let us see if we can't find the spring that works the rock. We sprang forward with desperate energy, and standing in a bloody ooze began to feel up and down the door and the sides of the passage, but no knob or spring could we discover. Depend on it, I said, it does not work from the inside. If it did, Gagool would not have risked trying to crawl underneath the stone. It was the knowledge of this that made her try to escape at all hazards, curse her. At all events, said Sir Henry, with a hard little laugh, retribution was swift. Hers was almost as awful an end as ours is likely to be. We can do nothing with the door. Let us go back to the treasure room. We turned and went. And as we passed it, I perceived by the unfinished wall across the passage the basket of food which poor Fulata had carried. I took it up and brought it with me to the accursed treasure chamber that was to be our grave. Then we returned and reverently bore in Fulata's corpse, laying it on the floor by the boxes of coin. Next we seated ourselves, leaning our backs against the three stone chests, which contained the priceless treasure. "'Let us divide the food,' said Sir Henry, 
so as to make it last as long as possible. Accordingly, we did so. It would, we reckoned, make four infinitesimally small meals for each of us, enough, say, to support life for a couple of days. Besides the biltong, or dried game flesh, there were two gourds of water, each of which held not more than a quart. Now, said Sir Henry grimly, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We each ate a small portion of the biltong and drank a sip of water. Needless to say, we had but little appetite, though we were sadly in need of food, and felt better after swallowing it. Then we got up and made a systematic examination of the walls of our prison house in the faint hope of finding some means of exit, sounding them and the floor carefully. There was none. It was not probable that there would be any to a treasure chamber. The lamp began to burn dim. The fat was nearly exhausted. Quartermain, said Sir Henry, what is the time? Your watch goes? I drew it out and looked at it. It was six o'clock. We had entered the cave at eleven. Infadus will miss us, I suggested. If we do not return tonight, he will search for us in the morning, Curtis. He may search in vain. He does not know the secret of the door, nor even where it is. No living person knew it yesterday except Gagool. Today no one knows it. Even if he found the door, he could not break it down. All the Kukuana army could not break through five feet of living rock. My friends, I see nothing for it but to bow ourselves to the will of the Almighty. The search for treasure has brought many to a bad end. We shall go to swell their number. The lamp grew dimmer yet. Presently it flared up and showed the whole scene in strong relief. The great mass of white tusks, the boxes of gold, the corpse of the poor Fulata stretched before them, the goatskin full of treasure, the dim glimmer of the diamonds, and the wild, wan faces of us three white men seated there awaiting death by starvation. Then the flame sank and expired. End of chapter 17 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by L. Ryder Haggard Chapter 18 we abandon hope. I can give no adequate description of the horrors of the night which followed. Mercifully, they were to some extent mitigated by sleep, for even in such a position as ours, wearied nature will sometimes assert itself. But I, at any rate, found it impossible to sleep much. Putting aside the terrifying thought of our impending doom, for the bravest man on earth might well quail from such a fate as awaited us, and I never made any pretensions to be brave. The silence itself was too great to allow of it. 
Reader, you may have lain awake at night and thought the quiet oppressive, but I say with confidence that you can have no idea what a vivid, tangible thing is perfect stillness. On the surface of the earth there is always some sound or motion, and though it may in itself be imperceptible, yet it deadens the sharp edge of absolute silence. But here there was none. We were buried in the bowels of a huge snow-clad peak. Thousands of feet above us, the fresh air rushed over the white snow, but no sound of it reached us. We were separated by a long tunnel and five feet of rock, even from the awful chamber of the dead, and the dead make no noise. Did we not know it who lay by poor Fulata's side? The crashing of all the artillery of earth and heaven could not have come to our ears in our living tomb. We were cut off from every echo of the world. We were as men already in the grave. Then the irony of the situation forced itself upon me. There around us lay treasures enough to pay off a moderate national debt or to build a fleet of ironclads, and yet we would have bartered them all gladly for the faintest chance of escape. Soon, doubtless, we would be rejoiced to exchange them for a bite of food or a cup of water, and after that even for the privilege of a speedy close to our sufferings. Truly wealth, which men spend their lives in acquiring, is a valueless thing at the last. And so the night wore on. Good, said Sir Henry's voice at last, and it sounded awful in the intense stillness. How many matches have you in the box? Eight, Curtis. Strike one, then, and let us see the time. He did so, and in contrast to the dense darkness, the flame nearly blinded us. It was five o'clock by my watch. The beautiful dawn was now blushing on the snow wreaths far over our heads, and the breeze would be stirring the night mists in the hollows. We had better eat something and keep up our strength, I suggested. What is the good of eating? answered Good. The sooner we die and get it over with, the better. While there is life, there is hope said Sir Henry. Accordingly, we ate and sipped some water, and another period of time elapsed. Then Sir Henry suggested that it might be well to get as near the door as possible, and hallo, on the faint chance of somebody catching a sound outside. Accordingly, Good, who from long practice at sea has a fine piercing note, groped his way down the passage and set to work. I must say that he made a most diabolical noise. I never heard such yells, but it might have been a mosquito buzzing, for all the effect they produced. After a while he gave it up and came back very thirsty and had to drink. Then we stopped yelling, as it encroached on the supply of water. So we sat down once more against the chests of useless diamonds in that dreaded inaction, which is one of the hardest circumstances of our fate, 
and I am bound to say that, for my part, I gave way in despair. Laying my head against Sir Henry's broad shoulder, I burst into tears, and I think that I heard Good gulping away on the other side, and swearing hoarsely at himself for doing it. Ah, how good and brave that great man was! Had we been two frightened children, and he our nurse, he could not have treated us more tenderly. Forgetting his own share of miseries, he did all he could to soothe our broken nerves, telling stories of men who had been in somewhat similar circumstances and miraculously escaped. And when these failed to cheer us, pointing out how, after all, it was only anticipating an end which must come to us all, that it would soon be over, and that death from exhaustion was a merciful one, which is not true. Then, in a diffident sort of way, as once before I had heard him do, he suggested that we should throw ourselves on the mercy of a higher power, which for my part I did with great vigor. His is a beautiful character, very quiet, but very strong. And so somehow the day went as the night had gone, if indeed one can use these terms when all was densest night, and when I lit a match to see the time, it was seven o'clock. Once more we ate and drank, and as we did so, an idea occurred to me. How is it, said I, that the air in this place keeps fresh? It is thick and heavy, but it is perfectly fresh. Good heavens, said Good, starting up. I never thought of that. It can't come through the stone door, for it's airtight, if ever a door was. It must come from somewhere. If there were no current of air in the place, we should have been stifled or poisoned when we first came in. Let us have a look. It was wonderful what a change this mere spark of hope wrought in us. In a moment we were all three groping about on our hands and knees, feeling for the slightest indication of a draft. Presently my ardor received a check. I put my hand on something cold. It was dead Fulata's face. For an hour or more we went on feeling about, till at last Sir Henry and I gave it up in despair, having been considerably hurt by constantly knocking our heads against tusks, chests, and the sides of the chamber. But Good still persevered, saying, with an approach to cheerfulness, that it was better than doing nothing. "'I say, you fellows,' he said presently, in a constrained sort of voice, "'come here.' Needless to say, we scrambled towards him quickly enough. Quatermain, put your hand here where mine is. Now, do you feel anything? I think I feel air coming up. Now listen. He rose and stamped upon the place, and a flame of hope shot up in our hearts. It rang hollow. With trembling hands I lit a match. I had only three left, and we saw we were in the angle of the far corner of the chamber, 
a fact that accounted for our not having noticed the hollow sound of the place during our former exhaustive examination. As the match burnt, we scrutinized the spot. There was a join in the solid rock floor, and, great heavens, there, let in level with the rock, was a stone ring. We said no word. We were too excited, and our hearts beat too wildly with hope to allow us to speak. Good had a knife, at the back of which was one of those hooks that are made to extract stones from horses' hooves. He opened it and scratched round the ring with it. Finally he worked it under, and levered away gently for fear of breaking the hook. The ring began to move. Being of stone, it had not rusted fast in all the centuries it had lain there, as would have been the case had it been of iron. Presently it was upright. Then he thrust his hands into it and tugged with all his force, but nothing budged. Let me try, I said impatiently, for the situation of the stone, right in the angle of the corner, was such that it was impossible for two to pull at once. I took hold and strained away, but no results. Then Sir Henry tried and failed. Taking the hook again, Good scratched all around the crack where we felt the air coming up. Now, Curtis, he said, tackle on and put your back into it. You are as strong as two. Stop. And he took off a stout black silk handkerchief, which, true to his habits of neatness, he still wore, and ran it through the ring. Quartermain, get Curtis round the middle and pull for dear life when I give the word. Now! Sir Henry put out all his enormous strength, and Good and I did the same, with such power as nature had given us. Heave! Heave! It's giving! gasped Sir Henry, and I heard the muscles of his great back cracking. Suddenly there was a grating sound, then a rush of air, and we were all on our backs on the floor with a heavy flagstone upon the top of us. Sir Henry's strength had done it, and never did muscular power stand a man in better stead. Light a match, Quartermain, he said, so soon as we had picked ourselves up and got our breath. Carefully now. I did so, and there before us, heaven be praised, was the first step of a stone stair. Now what is to be done? asked Good. Follow the stair, of course, and trust to Providence. Stop, said Sir Henry. Quartermain, get the bit of biltong and the water that are left. We may want them. I went, creeping back to our place by the chests for that purpose, and as I was coming away an idea struck me. We had not thought much of the diamonds for the last twenty-four hours or so. Indeed, the very idea of diamonds was nauseous, seeing what they had entailed upon us. But, reflected I, I may as well pocket some, just in case we should ever get out of this ghastly hole. So I just put my fist into the first chest and filled all the available pockets of my old shooting coat and trousers, topping up, this was a happy thought, with a few handfuls of big ones from the third chest. Also, by an afterthought, I stuffed Fulata's basket, 
which except for one water gourd and a little biltong was empty now, with great quantities of the stones. I say, you fellows, I sang out, won't you take some diamonds with you? I filled my pockets and the basket. Oh, come on, Quartermain, and hang the diamonds, said Sir Henry. I hope that I may never see another. As for good, he made no answer. He was, I think, taking his last farewell of all that was left of the poor girl who had loved him so well. And curiously as it may seem to you, my reader, sitting at home at ease and reflecting on the vast, indeed the immeasurable, wealth which we were thus abandoning, I can assure you that if you had passed some twenty-eight hours with next to nothing to eat and drink in that place, you would not have cared to cumber yourself with diamonds whilst plunging down into the unknown bowels of the earth, in the wild hope of escape from an agonizing death. If from the habits of a lifetime it had not become a sort of second nature with me never to leave anything worth having behind, if there was the slightest chance of my being able to carry it away, I am sure that I should not have bothered to fill my pockets and that basket. "'Come on, Quartermain,' repeated Sir Henry, who was already standing on the first step of the stone stair. "'Steady, I will go first. "'Mind where you put your feet. "'There may be some awful hole underneath,' I answered. "'Much more likely to be another room,' said Sir Henry, "'while he descended slowly, counting the steps as he went. "'When he got to fifteen, he stopped. "'Here's the bottom.' he said. Thank goodness, I think it's a passage. Follow me down. Good went next, and I came last, carrying the basket, and on reaching the bottom lit one of the two remaining matches. By its light we could just see that we were standing in a narrow tunnel, which ran right and left at right angles to the staircase we had descended. Before we could make out any more, the match burnt my fingers and went out. Then arose the delicate question of which way to go. Of course, it was impossible to know what the tunnel was or where it led to, and yet to turn one way might lead us to safety and the other to destruction. We were utterly perplexed, till suddenly it struck good that when I had lit the match, the draft of the passage blew the flame to the left. Let us go against the draft, he said. Air draws inwards, not outwards. We took this suggestion, and feeling along the wall with our hands, whilst trying the ground before us at every step, we departed from that accursed treasure chamber on our terrible quest for life. If ever it should be entered again by living man, which I do not think probable, he will find tokens of our visit in the open chests of jewels, the empty lamp, and the white bones of poor Fulata. When we had groped our way for about a quarter of an hour along the passage, suddenly it took a sharp turn, or else was bisected by another, which we followed, only in course of time to be led into a third. And so it went on for some hours. We seemed to be in a stone labyrinth that led nowhere. 
What all these passages are, of course, I cannot say, but we thought that they must be the ancient workings of a mine, of which the various shafts and adits traveled hither and thither as the ore led them. This is the only way in which we could account for such a multitude of galleries. At length we halted, thoroughly worn out with fatigue, and with that hope deferred which maketh the heart sick, and ate up our poor remaining piece of biltong, and drank our last sup of water, for our throats were like lime kilns. It seemed to us that we had escaped death in the darkness of the treasure chamber, only to meet him in the darkness of the tunnels. As we stood, once more utterly depressed, I thought that I caught a sound, to which I call the attention of the others. It was very faint and very far off, but it was a sound, a faint murmuring sound, for the others heard it too, and no words can describe the blessedness of it after all those hours of utter awful stillness. "'By heavens, it's running water,' said Good. "'Come on!' Off we started again in the direction from which the faint murmur seemed to come, groping our way as before along the rocky walls. I remember that I laid down the basket full of diamonds, wishing to be rid of its weight, but on second thoughts took it up again. One might as well die rich as poor, I reflected. As we went, the sound became more and more audible, till at last it seemed quite loud in the quiet. On, yet on, now we could distinctly make out the unmistakable swirl of rushing water. And yet, how could there be running water in the bowels of the earth? Now we were quite near it, and Good, who was leading, swore that he could smell it. "'Go gently, Good,' said Sir Henry. "'We must be close.' Splash! And a cry from Good. He had fallen in. "'Good, good, where are you?' we shouted in terrified distress. To our intense relief, an answer came back in a choky voice. "'All right, I've got hold of a rock. "'Strike a light to show me where you are.' Hastily I lit the last remaining match. Its faint gleam discovered to us a dark mass of water running at our feet. How wide it was we could not see but there, some way out, was the dark form of our companion hanging on to a projecting rock. "'Stand clear to catch me,' swung out Good. "'I must swim for it.' Then we heard a splash and a great struggle. Another minute, and he had grabbed at and caught Sir Henry's outstretched hand, and we had pulled him up high and dry into the tunnel. "'My word!' he said between his gasps. That was touch and go. If I hadn't managed to catch that rock and know how to swim, I should have been done. It runs like a mill race, and I could feel no bottom. We dared not follow the banks of the subterranean river for fear lest we should fall into it again in the darkness. So after Good had rested a while, and we had drunk our fill of the water, which was sweet and fresh, and washed our faces that needed it sadly, as well as we could, we started from the banks of this African Styx and began to retrace our steps along the tunnel, 
good dripping unpleasantly in front of us. At length we came to another gallery leading to our right. We may as well take it, said Sir Henry wearily. All roads are alike here. We can only go on till we drop. Slowly, for a long, long while, we stumbled, utterly exhausted, along this new tunnel, Sir Henry now leading the way. Again I thought of abandoning that basket, but did not. Suddenly he stopped, and we bumped up against him. Look, he whispered, is my brain going, or is that light? We stared with all our eyes, and there, yes, there, far ahead of us, was a faint, glimmering spot no larger than a cottage window-pane. It was so faint that I doubt if any eyes, except those which, like ours, had for days seen nothing but blackness, could have perceived it at all. With a gasp of hope we pushed on. In five minutes there was no longer any doubt. It was a patch of faint light. A minute more, and a breath of real live air was fanning us. On we struggled. All at once the tunnel narrowed. Sir Henry went on his knees. Smaller yet it grew, till it was only the size of a large fox's earth. It was earth now, mind you, the rock had ceased. A squeeze, a struggle, and Sir Henry was out, and so was good, and so was I, dragging Fulata's basket after me. And there above us were the blessed stars, and in our nostrils was the sweet air. Then suddenly something gave, and we were all rolling over and over and over through grass and bushes and soft, wet soil. The basket caught in something, and I stopped. Sitting up, I hallooed lustily. An answering shout came from below, where Sir Henry's wild career had been checked by some level ground. I scrambled to him and found him unhurt, though breathless. Then we looked for good. A little way off, we discovered him also, hammed in a forked root. He was a good deal knocked about, but soon came to himself. We sat down together there on the grass, and the revulsion of feeling was so great that really I think we cried with joy. We had escaped from that awful dungeon, which was so near to becoming our grave. Surely some merciful power guided our footsteps to the jackal hole, for that is what it must have been at the termination of the tunnel. And see, yonder on the mountains, the dawn we had never thought to look upon again was blushing rosy red. Presently the gray light stole down the slopes, and we saw that we were at the bottom, or rather nearly at the bottom, of the vast pit in front of the entrance to the cave. Now we could make out the dim forms of the three colossi who sat upon its verge. Doubtless those awful passages, along which we had wandered the live-long night, had been originally in some way connected with the great diamond mine. As for the subterranean river in the bowels of the mountain, Heaven only knows what it is, or whence it flows, or whither it goes. I, for one, have no anxiety to trace its course.
lighter it grew, and lighter yet. We could see each other now, and such a spectacle as we presented I have never set eyes upon before or since. Gaunt-cheeked, hollow-eyed wretches, smeared all over with dust and mud, bruised, bleeding, the long fear of imminent death yet written on our countenances, we were indeed a sight to frighten the daylight. And yet it is a solemn fact that Good's eyeglass was still fixed in Good's eye. I doubt whether he had taken it out at all. Neither the darkness, nor the plunge in the subterranean river, nor the roll down the slope, had been able to separate Good and his eyeglass. Presently we rose, feeling that our limbs would stiffen if we stopped there long, and commenced with slow and painful steps to struggle up the sloping sides of the great pit. For an hour or more we toiled steadfastly up the blue clay, dragging ourselves on by the help of the roots and grasses with which it was closed. But now I had no more thought of leaving the basket. Indeed, nothing but death should have parted us. At last it was done, and we stood by the great road on that side of the pit, which is opposite to the Colossi. At the side of the road, a hundred yards off, a fire was burning in front of some huts, and round the fire were figures. We staggered towards them, supporting one another, and halting every few paces. Presently one of the figures rose, saw us, and fell onto the ground, crying out for fear. Infarus, Infarus, it is we, thy friends. He rose. He ran to us, staring wildly, and still shaking with fear. O oh, my lords, my lords, it is you indeed. You come back from the dead, come back from the dead. And the old warrior flung himself down before us. And clasping Sir Henry's knees, he wept aloud for joy. End of chapter 18 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by L. Ryder Haggard Chapter 19 Ignosi's Farewell Ten days from that eventful morning found us once more in our old quarters at Loo, and strange to say, but little the worse for our terrible experience, except that my stubby hair came out of the treasure cave about three shades grayer than it went in, and that good never was quite the same after Fulata's death which seemed to move him very greatly. I am bound to say, looking at the thing from the point of view of an oldish man of the world, that I consider her removal was a fortunate occurrence, since otherwise complications would have been sure to ensue. The poor creature was no ordinary native girl, but a person of great, I had almost said stately, beauty, and of considerable refinement, of mind. But no amount of beauty or refinement could have made an entanglement between good and herself 
a desirable occurrence, for, as she herself put it, can the sun mate with the darkness, or the white with the black. I need hardly state that we never again penetrated into Solomon's treasure chamber. After we had recovered from our fatigue, a process which took us forty-eight hours, we descended into the great pit in the hope of finding the hole by which we had crept out of the mountain, but with no success. To begin with, rain had fallen and obliterated our spore, and what is more, the sides of the vast pit were full of ant-bear and other holes. It was impossible to say to which of these we owed our salvation. Also, on the day before we started back to Lou, we made a further examination of the wonders of the stalactite cave, and drawn by a kind of restless feeling, even penetrated once more into the chamber of the dead. Passing beneath the spear of the white death, we gazed with sensations which it would be quite impossible for me to describe at the mass of rock that had shut us off from escape, thinking the while of priceless treasures beyond, of the mysterious old hag whose flattened fragments lay crushed beneath it, and of the fair girl of whose tomb it was the portal. I say gazed at the rock, for examine as we could, we could find no traces of the join of the sliding door, nor indeed could we hit upon the secret, now utterly lost, that worked it, though we tried for an hour or more. It is certainly a marvelous bit of mechanism, characteristic in its massive and yet inscrutable simplicity of the age which produced it and I doubt if the world has such another to show. At last we gave it up in disgust, though if the mass had suddenly risen before our eyes, I doubt if we should have screwed up courage to step over Gagool's mangled remains and once more enter the treasure chamber, even in the sure and certain hope of unlimited diamonds. And yet I could have cried at the idea of leaving all that treasure, the biggest treasure probably that in the world's history has ever been accumulated in one spot. But there was no help for it. Only dynamite could force its way through five feet of solid rock. So we left it. Perhaps in some remote unborn century a more fortunate explorer may hit upon the open sesame and flood the world with gems. But myself, I doubt it. Somehow, I seem to feel that the tens of millions of pounds worth of jewels which lie in the three stone coffers will never shine round the neck of an earthly beauty. They and Fulata's bones will keep cold company till the end of all things. With a sigh of disappointment, we made our way back, and next day started for Lou. And yet it was really very ungrateful of us to be disappointed, for as the reader will remember, by a lucky thought, I had taken the precaution to fill the wide pockets of my old shooting coat and trousers with gems before we left our prison house, also Fulata's basket, which held twice as many more 
notwithstanding that the water-bottle had occupied some of its space. A good many of these fell out in the course of our roll down the side of the pit, including several of the big ones, which I had crammed in on the top in my coat pockets. But comparatively speaking, an enormous quantity still remained, including ninety-three large stones, ranging from over two hundred to seventy carats in weight. My old shooting coat and the basket still held sufficient treasure to make us all, if not millionaires, as the term is understood in America, at least exceedingly wealthy men, and yet to keep enough stones each to make the three finest sets of gems in Europe. So we had not done so badly. On arriving at Lou, we were most cordially received by Ignosi, whom we found well and busily engaged in consolidating his power and reorganizing the regiments which had suffered most in the great struggle with Twala. He listened with intense interest to our wonderful story. But when we told him of old Gagool's frightful end, he grew thoughtful. Come hither, he called to a very old Induna, or counsellor, who was sitting with others in a circle round the king, but out of earshot. The ancient man rose, approached, saluted, and seated himself. "'Thou art aged,' said Ignosi. "'I, my lord, the king, thy father's father, and I were born on the same day. "'Tell me, when thou wast little, did thou knowest Gagool, the witch-doctress? "'I, my lord, the king. "'How was she then?' "'Young, like thee?' "'Not so, my lord, the king. "'She was even as she is now, "'as she was in the days of my great-grandfather before me, "'old and dried, very ugly, and full of wickedness. "'She is no more. "'She is dead. "'So, O king, then is an ancient curse taken from the land.' Go. Cum, I go, black puppy, who tore out the old dog's throat. Cum. Ye see, my brothers, said Ignosi, this was a strange woman, and I rejoice that she is dead. She would have let you die in the dark place, and mayhap afterwards she had found a way to slay me, as she found a way to slay my father, and set up Twala whom her black heart loved, in his place. Now go on with the tale. Surely there never was its like. After I had narrated all the story of our escape, as we had agreed between ourselves that I should, I took the opportunity to address Ignosi as to our departure from Kukuanaland. And now, Ignosi, I said, the time has come for us to bid thee farewell and start to see our own land once more. Behold, Ignosi, thou camest with us a servant, and now we leave thee a mighty king. If thou art grateful to us, remember to do even as thou didst promise, to rule justly, to respect the law, 
and to put none to death without a cause. So shalt thou prosper. Tomorrow, at the break of day, Ignosi, thou wilt give us an escort who shall lead us across the mountains. Is it not so, O king? Ignosi covered his face with his hands for a while before answering. My heart is sore, he said at last. Your words split my heart in twain. What have I done to you, Inkubu, Makumazan, and Buguan, that ye should leave me desolate? Ye who stood by me in rebellion and in battle, will ye leave me in the day of peace and victory? What will ye, wives? Choose from among the maidens. A place to live in? Behold, the land is yours as far as ye can see. The white men's houses, ye shall teach my people how to build them. Cattle for beef and milk, every married man shall bring you an ox or a cow. Wild game to hunt, does not the elephant walk through my forests, and the river horse sleep in the reeds? Would ye make war? My impies wait your word. If there is anything more which I can give, that will I give you. Nay, Ignosi, we want none of these things, I answered. We would seek our own place. Now do I learn, said Ignosi bitterly and with flashing eyes, that ye love the bright stones more than me, your friend. Ye have the stones, now ye would go to Natal and across the moving black water and sell them, and be rich, as it is the desire of a white man's heart to be. Cursed for your sake be the white stones, and cursed he who seeks them. Death shall it be to him who sets foot in the place of death to find them. I have spoken. White men, ye can go. I laid my hand upon his arm. Ignosi, I said, tell us, when thou didst wander in Zululand and among the white people of Natal, did not thine heart turn to the land thy mother told thee of, thy native place, where thou didst see the light, and play when thou wast little, the land where thy place was? It was even so, Macumazan. In like manner, Ignosi, do our hearts turn to our land and to our own place. Then came a silence. When Ignosi broke it, it was in a different voice. I do perceive that now as ever thy words are wise and full of reason, Macumazan. That which flies in the air loves not to run along the ground. The white man loves not to live on the level of the black, or to house among his corrals. Well, ye must go, and leave my heart sore, because ye will be as dead to me, since from where ye are no tidings can come to me. But listen, and let all your brothers know my words. 
no other white man shall cross the mountains, even if any man live to come so far. I will see no traitors with their guns and gin. My people shall fight with the spear and drink water like their forefathers before them. I will have no praying men to put a fear of death into men's hearts, to stir them up against the law of the king and make a path for the white folk who follow to run on. If a white man comes to my gates, I will send him back. If a hundred come, I will push them back. If armies come, I will make war on them with all my strength, and they shall not prevail against me. None shall ever seek for the shining stones, no, not an army. For if they come, I will send a regiment and fill up the pit and break down the white columns in the caves, and choke them with rocks, so that none can reach even to that door of which ye speak, and whereof the way to move it is lost. But for you three, Inkubu, Makumazan, and Buguan, the path is always open, for behold, ye are nearer to me than aught that breathes, and ye would go. Infarus, my uncle, and my Unduna shall take you by the hand and guide you with a regiment. There is, as I have learned, another way across the mountains that he shall show you. Farewell, my brothers, brave white men. See me no more, for I have no heart to bear it. Behold, I make a decree, and it shall be published from the mountains to the mountains. Your names... Ingabu, Makumazan, and Buguan shall be Hlonipa, even as the names of dead kings, and he who speaks them shall die. So shall your memory be preserved in the land forever. Note, this extraordinary and negative way of showing intense respect is by no means unknown among African people, and the result is that if, as is usual, the name in question has a significance, the meaning must be expressed by an idiom or other word. In this way a memory is preserved for generations, or until the new word utterly supplants the old. Go now, ere my eyes rain tears like a woman's. At times, as you look back down the path of life, or when you are old and gather yourselves together to crouch before the fire, because for you the sun has no more heat. Ye will think of how we stood shoulder to shoulder in that great battle which thy wise words planned, Macumazan, of how thou wast the point of the horn that galled Twala's flank, Buguan, whilst thou stood in the ring of the greys, Inkubu, and men went down before thine axe like corn before a sickle, Ay, and of how thou didst break that wild bull Twala's strength, and bring his pride to dust. Fare ye well forever, Inkibu, Makumazan, and Buguan, my lords and my friends. Ignosi rose and looked earnestly at us for a few seconds. Then he threw the corner of his cross over his head, so as to cover his face from us. 
We went in silence. Next day at dawn we left Lou, escorted by our old friend Infadus, who was heartbroken at our departure, and by the regiment of buffaloes. Early as was the hour, all the main street of the town was lined with multitudes of people, who gave us the royal salute as we passed at the head of the regiment, while the women blessed us for having rid the land of Twala, throwing flowers before us as we went. It was really very affecting, and not the sort of thing one is accustomed to meet with from natives. One ludicrous incident occurred, however, which I rather welcomed, as it gave us something to laugh at. Just before we reached the confines of the town, a pretty young girl with some lovely lilies in her hand ran forward and presented them to Good. Somehow they all seemed to like Good. I think his eyeglass and solitary whisker gave him a fictitious value. And then said that she had a boon to ask. Speak on, he answered. Let my lord show his servant his beautiful white legs, that his servant may look upon them and remember them all her days, and tell of them to her children. His servant has traveled four days' journey to see them, for the fame of them has gone throughout the land. I'll be hanged if I do, exclaimed Good excitedly. Come, come, my dear fellow, said Sir Henry. You can't refuse to oblige a lady. I won't replied good obstinately it is positively indecent however in the end he consented to drop his trousers to the knee amid notes of rapturous admiration from all the women present especially the gratified young lady and in this guise he had to walk till we got clear of the town good's legs i fear will never be so greatly admired again of his melting teeth and even of his transparent eye, the Kukuanas wearied more or less, but of his legs, never. As we traveled, Infidus told us that there was another pass over the mountains to the north of the one followed by Solomon's Great Road, or rather that there was a place where it was possible to climb down the wall of cliff which separates Kukuana land from the desert, and is broken by the towering shapes of Sheba's breasts. It appeared also that rather more than two years previously a party of Kukuana hunters had descended this path into the desert in search of ostriches, whose plumes are much prized among them for war headdresses, and that in the course of their hunt they had been led far from the mountains and were much troubled by thirst. Seeing trees on the horizon, however, they walked towards them and discovered a large and fertile oasis some miles in extent, and plentifully watered. It was by way of this oasis that Infidus suggested we should return, and the idea seemed to us a good one, for it appeared that we should thus escape the rigors of the mountain pass. Also some of the hunters were in attendance to guide us to the oasis, from which they stated they could perceive other fertile spots far away in the desert. Note, it often puzzled all of us to understand how it was possible that Ignosi's mother, bearing the child with her, should have survived the dangers of her journey across the mountains and the desert, dangers which so nearly proved fatal to ourselves. 
It has since occurred to me, and I give the idea to the reader for what it is worth, that she must have taken this second route, and wandered out like Hagar into the wilderness. If she did so, there is no longer anything inexplicable about the story, since, as Ignosi himself related, she may well have been picked up by some ostrich hunters before she or the child was exhausted, was led by them to the oasis, and thence by stages to the fertile country, and so on by slow degrees southwards to Zululand. Alan Quartermain. Traveling easily, on the night of the fourth day's journey, we found ourselves once more on the crest of the mountains that separate Kukuana land from the desert, which rolled away in sandy billows at our feet, and about twenty-five miles to the north of Sheba's breasts. At dawn on the following day, we were led to the edge of a very precipitous chasm, by which we were to descend the precipice and gain the plain two thousand and more feet below. Here we bade farewell to that true friend and sturdy old warrior, Infadus, who solemnly wished all good upon us, and nearly wept with grief. Never, my lords, he said, shall mine own eyes see the like of you again. Ah, the way that Inkibu cut his men down in the battle! Ah, for the sight of that stroke with which he swept off my brother Twala's head! It was beautiful, beautiful! I may never hope to see such another, except, perchance, in happy dreams. We were very sorry to part from him. Indeed, Good was so moved that he gave him as a souvenir, what do you think, an eyeglass. Afterwards we discovered that it was a spare one. Infidus was delighted, foreseeing that the possession of such an article would increase his prestige enormously, and after several vain attempts he actually succeeded in screwing it into his own eye. Anything more incongruous than the old warrior looked with an eyeglass I never saw. Eyeglasses do not go well with leopard-skin cloaks, and black ostrich plumes. Then, after seeing that our guides were well laden with water and provisions, and having received a thundering farewell salute from the buffaloes, we wrung Infadus by the hand and began our downward climb. A very arduous business it proved to be, but somehow that evening we found ourselves at the bottom without accident. Do you know said Sir Henry that night, as we sat by our fire and gazed up at the beetling cliffs above us. I think that there are worse places than Kukuana land in the world, and that I have known unhappier times than the last month or two, though I have never spent such queer ones. Eh, you fellows? I almost wish I were black, said Good with a sigh. As for myself, I reflected that all's well that ends well. But in the course of a long life of shaves, I never had such shaves as those which I recently experienced. The thought of that battle makes me feel cold all over. And as for our experience in the treasure chamber. Next morning, we started on a toilsome trudge across the desert having with us a good supply of water carried by our five guides, encamped that night in the open, marching again at dawn on the morrow. 
By noon of the third day's journey we could see the trees of the oasis of which the guide spoke, and within an hour of sundown we were walking once more upon grass and listening to the sound of running water. End of chapter 19 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 20 Found And now I come to perhaps the strangest adventure that happened to us in all this strange business, and one which shows how wonderfully things are brought about. I was walking along quietly, some way in front of the other two, down the banks of the stream which runs from the oasis till it is swallowed up in the hungry desert sands, when suddenly I stopped and rubbed my eyes as well I might. There, not twenty yards in front of me, placed in a charming situation under the shade of a species of fig tree, and facing to the stream, was a cozy hut. Built more or less on the Kaffir principle, with grass and withes, but having a full-length door instead of a bee-hole. What the dickens, said I to myself, can a hut be doing out here? Even as I said it, the door of the hut opened, and there limped out of it a white man clothed in skins, and with an enormous black beard. I thought that I must have got a touch of the sun. It was impossible. No hunter ever came to such a place as this. Certainly no hunter would ever settle in it. I stared and stared, and so did the other man, and just at that juncture Sir Henry and Good walked up. "'Look here, you fellows,' I said. "'Is that a white man, or am I mad?' Sir Henry looked, and Good looked, and then all of a sudden the lame white man with a black beard uttered a great cry, and began hobbling towards us. When he was close, he fell down in a sort of faint. With a spring, Sir Henry was by his side. "'Great powers!' he cried. "'It is my brother George!' At the sound of this disturbance, another figure, also clad in skins, emerged from the hut, a gun in his hand, and ran towards us. On seeing me, he too gave a cry. Macumazon, he hollowed. Don't you know me, boss? I'm Jim the Hunter. I lost the note you gave me to give to the boss. And we have been here nearly two years. And the fellow fell at my feet and rolled over and over, weeping for joy. You careless scoundrel, I said. You ought to be well jambocked. That is, hided. Meanwhile, the man with the black beard had recovered and risen, and he and Sir Henry were pump-handing away at each other, apparently without a word to say. But whatever they had quarreled about in the past, I suspect it was a lady, though I never asked, it was evidently forgotten now. "'My dear old fellow,' burst out Sir Henry at last, "'I thought you were dead. I have been over Solomon's Mountains to find you. 
I had given up all hope of ever seeing you again, and now I come across you perched in the desert like an old asphogel. Vulture. I tried to cross Solomon's Mountains nearly two years ago, was the answer, spoken in the hesitating voice of a man who has had little recent opportunity of using his tongue. But when I reached here, a boulder fell on my leg and crushed it, and I have been able to go neither forward nor back. Then I came up. How do you do, Mr. Neville, I said. Do you remember me? Why, he said, isn't it Hunter Quartermain, eh? And good, too. Hold on a minute, you fellows, I'm getting dizzy again. It is all so very strange, and when a man has ceased to hope, so very happy. That evening, over the campfire, George Curtis told us his story, which in its way was almost as eventful as our own, and put shortly amounted to this. A little less than two years before, he had started from Sitanda's corral to try and reach Suleiman's burg. As for the note I had sent him by Jim, that worthy lost it, and he had never heard of it till today. But acting upon information he had received from the natives, he headed not for Sheba's breasts, but for the ladder-like descent of the mountains down which we had just come, which is clearly a better route than that marked out in old Dom Silvestre's plan. In the desert, he and Jim had suffered great hardships, but finally they reached this oasis, where a terrible accident befell George Curtis. On the day of their arrival, he was sitting by the stream, and Jim was extracting the honey from the nest of a stingless bee, which is to be found in the desert, on the top of a bank immediately above him. In so doing, he loosened a great boulder of rock, which fell upon George Curtis's right leg, crushing it frightfully. From that day he had been so lame that he found it impossible to go either forward or back, and had preferred to take the chance of dying in the oasis to the certainty of perishing in the desert. As for food, however, they got on pretty well, for they had a good supply of ammunition, and the oasis was frequented, especially at night, by large quantities of game, which came thither for water. These they shot, or trapped in pitfalls, using the flesh for food, and after their clothes wore out, the hides for clothing. And so, George Curtis ended, we have lived for nearly two years, like a second Robinson Crusoe and his man Friday, hoping against hope that some natives might come here to help us away, but none have come. Only last night we settled that Jim should leave me and try to reach Sitanda's corral to get assistance. He was to go tomorrow, but I had little hope of ever seeing him back again. And now you, of all people in the world, you, who, as I fancied, had long ago forgotten all about me, and were living comfortably in old England, turn up in a promiscuous way and find me where you least expected. It is the most wonderful thing that I have ever heard of, and the most merciful, too. Then Sir Henry sat to work and told him the main facts of our adventures, sitting till late into the night to do it.
"'By Jove!' said George Curtis, when I showed him some of the diamonds. "'Well, at least you have got something for your pains besides my worthless self.' Sir Henry laughed. "'They belong to Quartermain, and good. It was a part of the bargain that they should divide any spoils there might be.' This remark set me thinking, and having spoken to good, I told Sir Henry that it was our joint wish that he should take a third portion of the diamonds, or, if he would not, that his share should be handed to his brother, who had suffered even more than ourselves on the chance of getting them. Finally we prevailed upon him to consent to this arrangement, but George Curtis did not know of it until some time afterwards. Here at this point I think I shall end my history. Our journey across the desert back to Sitanda's corral was most arduous, especially as we had to support George Curtis, whose right leg was very weak indeed, and continually threw out splinters of bone. But we did accomplish it somehow, and to give its details would only be to reproduce much of what happened to us on the former occasion. Six months from the date of our re-arrival at Sitanda's, where we found our guns and other goods quite safe, though the old rascal in charge was much disgusted at our surviving to claim them, saw us all once more safe and sound at my little place on the Berea, near Durban, where I am now writing. Thence I bid farewell to all who have accompanied me through the strangest trip I ever made in the course of a long and varied experience. P.S. Just as I had written the last word, a kaffir came up my avenue of orange trees, carrying a letter in a cleft stick, which he had brought from the post. It turned out to be from Sir Henry, and as it speaks for itself, I give it in full. October 1, 1884. Brayley Hall, Yorkshire. My dear Quartermain, I send you a line a few mails back to say that the three of us Good, George, and myself, fetched up all right in England. We got off the boat at Southampton and went up to town. You should have seen what a swell good turned out to be the very next day. Beautifully shaved, frock coat fitting like a glove, brand new eyeglass, etc., etc. I went and walked in the park with him, where I met some people I know, and at once told him the story of his beautiful white legs. He is furious, especially as some ill-natured person has printed it in a society paper. To come to business, Good and I took the diamonds to Streeters, to be valued as we arranged, and really I am afraid to tell you what they put them at. It seems so enormous. They say that, of course, it is more or less guesswork, as such stones have never to their knowledge been put on the market in anything like such quantities. It appears that with the exception of one or two of the largest, they are of the finest water, and equal in every way to the best Brazilian stones. I asked them if they would buy them, but they said it was beyond their power to do so, and recommended us to sell by degrees, over a period of years indeed, for fear lest we should flood the market. They offer, however, a hundred and eighty thousand for a very small portion of them. 
"'You must come home, Quartermain, and see about these things, "'especially if you insist upon making the magnificent present of the third share, "'which does not belong to me, to my brother George. "'As for good, he is no good. "'His time is too much occupied in shaving, "'and other matters connected with the vain adorning of the body. "'But I think he is still down on his luck about Fulata.' He told me that since he had been home, he hadn't seen a woman to touch her, either as regards her figure or the sweetness of her expression. I want you to come home, my dear old comrade, and to buy a house near here. You have done your day's work, and have lots of money now, and there is a place for sale quite close which would suit you admirably. Do come, the sooner the better. You can finish writing the story of our adventures on board ship. We have refused to tell the tale till it is written by you, for fear lest we shall not be believed. If you start on receipt of this, you will reach here by Christmas, and I book you to stay with me for that. Good is coming, and George, and so, by the way, is your boy Harry. There's a bribe for you. I have had him down for a week's shooting, and like him. He's a cool young hand. He shot me in the leg, cut out the pellets, and then remarked upon the advantages of having a medical student with every shooting party. Goodbye, old boy. I can't say any more. But I know that you will come, if it is only to oblige your sincerest friend, Henry Curtis. P.S. The tusks of the great bull that killed poor Kiva have now been put up in the hall here over the pair of buffalo horns you gave me, and look magnificent. And the axe with which I chopped off Twala's head is fixed above my writing table. I wish that we could have managed to bring away the coats of chain armor. Don't lose poor Fulata's basket in which you brought away the diamonds. H.C. Today is Tuesday. There is a steamer going on Friday. And I really think that I must take Curtis at his word and sail by her for England. If it is only to see you, Harry, my boy, and to look after the printing of this history, which is a task that I do not like to trust to anybody else. Alan Quartermain. The End. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.